What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thank you so much. When I was young and studying cinema, there was a saying that I carved deep into my heart, which is the most personal is the most creative. That quote was from uh, our great Martin Scorsese. So <laughs> that was a nice moment. Such a nice moment. It almost made me wish I'd watched the Oscars. Missed a good one. That was Parasite director Bong Joon-ho at last weekend's Oscars ceremony, accepting his Best Director Award, one of four trophies the film took home, including Best Picture. This week on the show, some thoughts on Parasite's historic Oscar wins, a quick review of the new Harley Quinn Birds of Prey and The Assistant, plus some highlights from our live 15th anniversary celebration recorded here in Chicago last weekend. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. If you had to pick one filmmaker whose work reflects your spiritual worldview, who would it be? With that one question, Josh, this past Saturday night, I was transported back to senior year existentialism class. <laughs> yeah, things got serious at the live show, didn't they? They did. Our listeners, as always, too damn smart. But that is a question we actually answered or fair to say, at least tried to answer last weekend at our 15th anniversary live show here in Chicago. You know, Michael Phillips, Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips and producer Sam Van Halgren, they were grilled with that question, too. So if mm-hmm. you're not interested in hearing what Adam and I have to say in response, you can at least hear them. Yeah, it was really great to see the crowd. A good turnout for our first stop on our tour at Chicago's historic Music Box Theater. We did screen. Howard Hawk's Rio Bravo in 35mm. We chatted about the movie. We had that Q&A featuring those very thoughtful questions from Film Spotting listeners. And as you said, Josh, the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips joined us on stage along with my original co-host turned producer, Sam Van Halgren. You will hear all of that later in the show. We also have a few thoughts on the new DCEU entry now called Harley Quinn or the Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. (laughs) I'm sorry, Birds of Prey. Adam, to me, it's always going to be Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. Okay. I'm sticking with it. It does still star Margot Robbie. They didn't change that, did they? As far as I know. Okay. You made it to that this past weekend. We're going to hear your thoughts. I made it just before sitting down here in the studio to the new film, The Assistant, directed by Kitty Green. We will share a few thoughts on those films, and podcast listeners will get their first taste it's here, a film spotting badness, our annual single elimination bracket style tourney. This year, it's the best of the 2010s. Are you ready? This is a tournament at least three years in yeah, the making. I'm ready. I mean, it truly is. And we have been working on this list in particular, Sam and I, for at least the past year. And you're not going to get the full list now, but you're going to get the play-ins. And there are some fun ones. So I am eager to finally unleash those on the world. But first, the Oscars. Josh, I joked about it, but it is true. I had a conflict for the first half, so I couldn't have watched it anyway, but I continued my tradition of not watching the Oscars, save for 15 minutes maybe here and there, and also checking in on Twitter. That's a thing now. People just say, I watched it on Twitter, because you pretty much can watch it in real time, whether you're actually seeing any of the footage or not. What did I miss? Well, I don't know if you heard, Adam, big night for Parasite. Oh, Okay. Big, big night. I mean, four Breaking awards news. is pretty insane, and it was fun to watch in real time. I, I actually do. I go the opposite way. I just do these 
this show in real life. I, I put the phone away, just hang out with the family. And what made that especially fun this year is the momentum that started to build for Parasite when hmm. it got, I think, the first award, if I'm trying to remember now, was for original screenplay. I think that came first. Maybe I had that wrong, but I'm pretty sure international feature then came. Um, whatever order they were in. Yeah. Director As they picture, started to pile up, you're, I, it was like, is this really going to happen? And it, it ended up with like a huge cheer in the house when it did get best mm-hmm. picture, scared the crap out of the dog. The poor dog was sound asleep at I that point. I did see that moment. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was great. It was a genuine surprise, which you would know if you had listened to our Oscar preview show a couple weeks ago with Michael Phillips. Both he and I decided that we were going to go the pessimistic route. We were going to assume the worst of the Academy, as most of us do. We thought for sure they were going to go with 1917, which wouldn't have been necessarily a terrible pick. Michael would say it was a terrible pick. To me, it just felt like the safest route. Traditional, kind of conventional, conventional, war epic, obviously very technically well-made, and I thought it was just a given that it was going to win and that Mendes was going to win for Best Director. But, Josh, here you were, the lone dissenting voice. You Somehow you looked into your Oscars crystal ball, yeah. and you predicted a Parasite win. Well, this is where I will announce that I'm resigning, Adam, from the show. You should. Um, e has picked me up to be a prognosticator next year. <laughs> no, you fu- can't do any worse than all the other so-called experts. <laughs> that's for sure. The funny thing is that was a total audible. Like it, I, I brought my notes and I had decided to go with 1917 as well. But as we were talking in conversation, um, yeah, I just it seemed like there was a path here. And my logic, I don't even know if my logic played out. It was the everyone will vote for it second. And with a ranked voting system for best picture. Sure, if there weren't a lot of favorites for number one, it might squeeze in there. Hmm. The number of awards that it won, the four awards, makes me think out of six. Uh, I, I think believe total. so. Yeah, it makes me think that it was you know the number one for a lot of people, which is great. I mean, there's just so much dithering about you know the representation of the nominees, and I think that's correct. One kind of icky thing about the show was that. There was not a diverse slate of nominees, so they tried to make up with that by having multiple introductions that they would trot out people who are, you know, great people to see, exciting, talented actors, actresses, and filmmakers, but it began to feel very much like tokenism. Yeah, and a fair amount of meta-commentary, too, where they were directly... And that was good. Like, I did like, like when Janelle Monet, her opening number, explicitly called it out. That made it feel like, okay, even if they tapped her to be a token, she wasn't having any of it and made her number a commentary, as you're saying. So it was an extra thrill to see Parasite, which was a option, a diverse option compared to most of the nominees, actually become the main winner of the whole night. Mm -hmm. Though... It's been suggested that maybe the big winner of the night, if you consider Bong's shout out and the standing ovation that followed, it might have been Martin Scorsese. And I didn't witness that in real time as it happened on the broadcast, but I did watch that later in the highlights, as well as Laura Dern's great speech, where she recognized her mother, Diane Ladd, in the audience, as well as obviously her father, Bruce Dern, who wasn't there. And those were genuinely touching moments. It was kind of neat. You could see on Scorsese's face that... He had no idea that he was the author of that quote until Bong said it. <laughs> yeah. So he was even surprised a little bit. And you could tell that he was genuinely shocked as well at the response. And I love that he stood up. He was so humble himself. He didn't want to make that about 
him definitely yeah there's a nice moment where you can see he actually points back to the stage yes. and and made the right call that uh, the gesture on Bong's part it was very kind and I'm sure Scorsese's films are meaningful to him but it almost did start to tip to where okay we have this fantastic historic win here and now we're going back to the traditional conventional guy but Scorsese handled it wonderfully and it, there were a lot of reaction shots of Scorsese throughout the night for whatever reason hmm. for someone who came away empty-handed right I believe so. Yeah, which was, you know, maybe a surprise. I know that I had hoped at least in the category of best supporting actor, Joe Pesci would get that, did end up going to Brad Pitt, as I think all three of us yes. expected. Yeah, we got the acting categories all correct, I think. I know I at least did call all four of those in terms of supporting actor and actress and lead actor and actress. It's the other four categories I got completely wrong, but it did seem like Phoenix was a lock. Zellweger was a lock as well as Laura Dern and Brad Pitt. The only one of those that disappoints me slightly, and we talked about Zellweger a little bit, I don't mind the movie, and I don't mind her performance. I think it's pretty good. I think I'm still disappointed, even though, again, felt inevitable. I'm disappointed only because of how much I genuinely loved Scarlett Johansson's performance yeah. in Marriage Story. And I think we probably touched on this in one way or another in our Oscar preview show. I love that Johansson's character is a real wife, mother, and actress, not a real-life wife, mother, and actress, if you know the distinction I'm drawing. Playing a I'm fictional just, character. Yeah, I'm just getting tired of seeing these impressions, even if they're great hey, ones. you're speaking my language. Win Oscars, and I think she is very good, but... In terms of performance, Johansson's was the top for me of the year. Yeah, as I, am, I mentioned, I think on our Oscar preview show, I was very surprised at how much I did appreciate Zellweger's performance, but I also thought that Johansson should have won it. I thought that even more during Zellweger's speech, which went on and on and on and got kind of awkward. Did you catch Joaquin Phoenix's speech, by no. the way? Another very lengthy one, and curiously, the bit about uh, where he goes into, um, you know, things we should probably think about, but how we treat cows, mm -hmm. for example, and to get our milk and, and got a little Okja. I mean, with Bong Joon-ho there, well, there you it, go. it got very Okja. It was a Bong kind of night. <laughs> it was. But it's funny you bring that up because I told you I flipped in and out and maybe saw about 15 minutes total. And I did see maybe about 15 seconds of Zellweger's speech. And that's when you flipped that right was back all out. I needed to see to remind <laughs> myself why I just can't watch the Oscars. There's something about those speeches that just makes me so uncomfortable, which does make me appreciate even more when I watch one like Alora Dern's after the fact and see how composed she is. She's a little nervous at the beginning, just like anyone would be in sure. that moment. But she's so composed and she manages to say some very eloquent things in that moment rather than rambling on and on and mostly being incoherent. And I'm just waiting for that to happen with every single one of those speeches. Well, I will say I'm not a fan of the speeches at all. If, if they cut out the speeches, I would be OK with it if they made that massive change to the Oscars. But I think the two that were the most elongated and awkward were those two. Otherwise, there were some really good ones throughout the night. I think even for um, Matthew Cherry, I want to say, a co-director of Hair Love, an animated short, um, spoke very eloquently about that project. And another really uh, moving speech was from the winner of Best Score, Hildur Gudnaduder, mm -hmm. who did the score for Joker, which I, I – I think is one of the very well-crafted elements of a well-crafted film. And she came up and gave a brief but effective speech as well. So I don't think – I think you probably saw the worst speech of the night. You had probably. the bad timing of that. 
It's fitting, I suppose. That Oscar special, which we did get at least one tweet from a listener who said it was really fun listening to our Oscar picks after the fact. Interesting. And why not? Especially because Michael was quite entertaining. And it really is more about our picks for who should win and our stupid omissions than it is the prognostications, which truly are meaningless. If you do want to check out that show, if you overlooked it, it's episode 762 in the Film Spotting Archive. You can find it at filmspotting.net. Talk about meaningless. I, I get that best picture prediction right. The unlikely prediction do i put any money on it anywhere do i even not. does my family even do a pool so that i can brag over the three of them no didn't get me anything quick history lesson this all started when the joker and i broke up it was completely mutual and soon enough i was back on my feet ready to embrace the fierce goddess within Margot Robbie did not win an Oscar this past weekend, but her new film did open. That's her as Harley Quinn in the film that has been rechristened Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey, after a less than stellar opening weekend at the box office. Now, do they really think that's going to make a dramatic difference? I'm not sure. But, Josh, you caught up with this film. It's one I do plan to see at some point, even though I still haven't seen Suicide Squad and frankly don't actually intend to. Will I be lost? And knowing how you felt about Suicide Squad, what made you want to see Harley Quinn? Well, Harley Quinn is, and I don't know if there is a best thing about Suicide Squad. That was really dreadful. But if there was one, it was Harley Quinn. Um, This is one of the more idiosyncratic comic book characters I can think of. And Margot Robbie has just, you know, the right or at least knows how to zero in on. I'm not an authority on what the Harley Quinn is on the page, but at least making this an incredibly idiosyncratic, um, fascinating character to follow. Um, And that is why I think those instincts are are right to put her name more at the front of the title because she is and should be the best thing about this movie as well. Um, I am liking it more and more the more I think about it. It was a bit of a strange experience. It has a lot of the negative things of the DCEU, which are this dismal, grim, gray, dark Gotham that were set in here. But then the whole Harley Quinn aesthetic is completely at odds with that. It is this bubblegum pop color. Um, there's blue and pink sheen. The The only way I can think of describing it is that it's a, it seems like it's made from rotten cotton candy because there is a decay, a sense of decay at the heart of this character as well. Basically, she's an anarchist, but sort of a party anarchist, not like a Joker from the Dark Knight anarchist. Um, she just kind of wants to have villainous fun, and she's going to do that with her own style. She puts you get the sense she puts most of the thought into her weapon choices and her fashion choices and then just jumps into the fray and sees what happens. And the things generally work out for her. And yeah, Robbie has the right verve for this. She makes it fun. You want to root for this character. And part of the interesting thing about Birds of Prey is how far you're willing to root for someone who is a villain. Now, they place a more villainous villain against her. Ewan McGregor's gangster. I don't think that performance works well. I know a lot of people really love it, but for me, um, he never quite decides to choose a comedy lane or a sadistic lane. He tries to mix the two, and sometimes that's possible, but it doesn't work for me here. Don't you think those roles are 
harder and harder to pull off because we've seen it done so many times. What are the new takes you can put on that type of villain? I don't think he brings anything new to it. So he's almost there just to, um, you know, it's like the movie wants to have a sense of moral anarchy to a point. And then it wants to set up this character as the point by which it will not cross. Um, So, you know, there's some interesting stuff going on there. I think the main problem with the film, um, and I should credit um, the director here, Kathy Yan, gives it this aesthetic, working with a great cinematographer, Matthew Libatique, did The Fountain, Black Swan, some other Aronofsky films, Darren Aronofsky films. And again, this this sort of um, rancid sugar fizz that they give to the movie is its main appeal. Uh, It is something to look at. The action scenes, there are a lot of them. Most of them work, but the climactic one is a vehicle chase and Harley Quinn is on roller skates for it. So that gives you an idea of just how they're going to take this character, put her in generic superhero comic book settings and allow her to give it its own sensibility. Uh, The stuff that doesn't work is a lot of these superhero movies really have difficulty bringing in multiple multiple characters, big casts. I think that's one of the underrated things that the MCU in the Avengers films does so well. We kind of take it for granted, but you see something like this and they try to work in the birds of prey which are these supporting characters, and it just is convoluted, awkward, doesn't work. That is probably more of a problem of the screenplay by Christina Hodson. And, you know, this is this is a tough thing to thread, trying to work in all these characters, than it is of the supporting players. Because you have Rosie Perez here, Journey Smollett-Bell, who I... The last thing I remember her being in a long time ago was as the little girl in Eve's Bayou. She's very good here, deserves her own movie. Um, And then the other character is Elizabeth, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead. So all, you know, very talented actors and they bring vibrant characters, but the story cannot fit them all in. Um, It really should have been just about Harley Quinn. It's all this movie needed. Robbie is great in the role. Uh, And I think if they had focused a little more on that, it would have been uh, more successful. But overall, yeah, I think it's worth seeing. Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey, currently out in wide release. If you agree or disagree with Josh's thoughts, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net or find us slash fight us on Twitter. I'm at filmspotting. He's at Larson on film. You're relatively new to the company. I mean, I've been working here for nearly two months. And you're under a lot of stress. Entry-level jobs in this industry are tough, right? Long hours? First one in, last one out. Good night. You're smart. You have to be smart. It's a tough job, but I can see that you've got what it takes. That's a clip from the trailer for the new film, The Assistant, which I just saw here. Josh walked out of the theater a short time ago. It's directed by Kitty Green, who made 2017's Casting John Bonet, a film that was a real regret. I still haven't caught up with. I believe Amy Nicholson, the great film critic, called into our Best of the Year show back in 2017 and had Casting John Bonet as her favorite film of 2017. And you can actually get a sense there from the trailer of how quiet this film is. Actually, I don't recall any music in the film at all. So that's one distinction from the trailer. But you hear those kind of hushed tones everyone is whispering in. And in some ways, this is a movie that would be an interesting pairing with your Harley Quinn Birds of Prey. And in some ways, it's, of course, completely antithetical. One way it's similar is that there is certainly something rotten and something decaying in this workplace. And you talked about that sense of anarchy with Harley Quinn. There's a lot of chaos in The Assistant, except 
it is all happening behind Julia Garner's eyes. She plays Jane, though. I'm not sure anyone really refers to her by her name throughout the film. She's an entry-level assistant at a Miramax-like production company in New York City. And it's very clear that she's an assistant for someone like Harvey Weinstein. And Kitty Green makes a really interesting choice that kind of makes this film almost feel like a horror film, which is you don't see the monster. You only hear him. You see the empty space in his office when he's not there and the door open, and yet somehow he's still imposing on everyone who's outside the office. You hear sounds coming from the office when he's in there, perhaps with an aspiring actress that he is trying out or talking to. You hear him a couple times on the phone talking directly to Jane, and in both of those instances, it's very hushed. But it does have that intimidation factor to it. So do you just never see his face or you actually no, never you see? truly never see him. Wow. I think there's maybe a moment where the camera kind of glimpses him. The door opens mm-hmm. and there's a presence there as he's talking to other people. But then the camera kind of does a soft focus thing and you see her eye him almost like she's not used to even seeing him okay. in the flesh. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And then the door closes. But truly, Green makes this really inspired choice to never show the bad guy. And that's what he definitely is. And she's really the only one who seems to want to at least acknowledge that or confront it. And as I said, that drama is playing out in what I said was otherwise a very restrained movie in her head the entire time. There's really nothing melodramatic at all about this film. So much so, Josh, that when she goes in to have a conversation with the head of HR at one point, played by Matthew McFadden, he pushes a Kleenex box towards her. And even just the gesture of pushing the box towards her takes on a certain menace. It's as if he's imposing upon her to just wipe those tears away Everything will be okay. And it's on its surface a very compassionate gesture, but really is belying the fact that he can't wait to put her back in her place and get her out of the office as soon as possible. Honestly, even New York City outside the walls of this place, it's like a mausoleum. It's as if you barely hear the sirens or the other sounds on the street bleeding into this place, which really has become a house of horrors for her. And as a general rule, Josh, I don't like to make comparisons to movies I haven't seen, but certainly a film I know by reputation. I think there's a lot of Jean Dielman in this movie in terms of it being a day in the life and all the tediousness that would go along with that from the moment she wakes up in the morning when it's still pitch black and when she goes home at night and it's pitch black. It is following her through all of her duties. And to go back to Birds of Prey for a second, it struck me, you watched a film with that kind of cotton candy aesthetic. And this is a movie that is all muted grays and greens. And even the pink shirt we see her wearing the whole time is a very dull color. It's as if somehow the life has been sucked out of every single person who works here. And maybe the most heartbreaking moment in the movie, which isn't a big plot point at all, there isn't a lot of plot in this film. It's a moment when she's talking to her father on the phone and it's clear that he's probably a very good man and he only wants what's best for his daughter and is curious how things are going. 
But it's very clear he also doesn't really want to hear the truth, mm-hmm. right? It's easier Only for wants to everyone. Hear good news. That's it. Yeah. It's easier for mom and it's easier for dad. It's easier for the HR boss. It's easier for every single person in the office who all has dreams of becoming a big-time producer, like Jane wants to be a producer someday. It's easier if they all just keep their heads down and stay quiet and pretend nothing is happening. So I definitely recommend The Assistant, and now I'm even more eager to go back and check out Casting John Bonet. Well, there you go, our first two reviews of 2020. Next, we're going to return to the 2010s. Film Spotting Madness, determining the best film of that decade, begins with our play-in matches. Then, if you couldn't make it to our 15th anniversary celebration at the Music Box last weekend, we'll share some of the Rio Bravo conversation and Q&A when we come back. Stay with us. The sun is sinking in the west The cattle go down to the stream The red wing settles in her nest It's time for a cowboy to dream Purple light in the canyon, that's where I long to be with my three good companions, just my rifle, pony, and me gonna Mr. Boot, I'm a $250 a week newspaper man. I can be had for 50. Why are you so good to me? I know newspapers backward, forward, and sideways. I can write them, edit them, print them, wrap them, and sell them. Don't need anybody right now. I can handle big news and little news. And if there's no news, I'll go out and bite a dog. He was one of the few remaining icons of Hollywood's golden age, passing away at the age of 103 last week. Kirk Douglas in a film that is certainly not typically considered one of Billy Wilder's iconic films, but it is one of my favorite Billy Wilder films, 1951's Ace in the Hole. He plays the grizzled, cynical, selfish newspaper man Chuck Tatum. Over the course of his career, Douglas was nominated for an Oscar three times. Two of those nominations were for Vincent Minnelli films, 1952's Bad and the Beautiful and 1956's Vincent Van Gogh biopic, Lust for Life. Those were good chances for me to get a little better acquainted with Douglas's work because both were part of our Manelli Marathon. We did that not too long ago, back in 2018. Yeah, and we could both probably benefit from a Kirk Douglas Marathon because as soon as we had heard that he passed and knew we would probably be talking about it on the show, I did consider whether or not there was enough there. There's certainly enough in his filmography, whether or not we had enough to say to do a top five Kirk Douglas appreciation. And pretty quickly, I was embarrassed because you look at his credits and there's easily over a hundred of them. I think it's the case that I've only seen six Kirk Douglas films. I don't know how that's possible, but I've only seen six of them. But what a set of six films they are. Now, I can kind of throw out one of them, which is The Final Countdown, a film from the 80s where he's a supporting player. He plays the captain of this ship, the Nimitz, that gets stuck in a time warp and goes back to the day before Pearl Harbor gets bombed by the Japanese. And as people 
have heard me say on the show many times over the years, that is just one of my favorite nostalgic films from the 1980s. Probably wouldn't have made a top five Kirk Douglas no, scenes list, is what wouldn't. you're saying. But these five films and these five performances are pretty great. You mentioned both Lust for Life and Bad and the Beautiful. I had those at five and four. Paths of Glory, a movie we haven't reviewed on the show but has come up in multiple top fives, the Stanley Kubrick movie. Out of the Past, the Jacques Tournay Film noir from 1947, Robert Mitchum, the lead in that, one of my favorite film noirs, actually discussed here on the show as part of our noir marathon back in 06 or 07. And then Ace in the Hole is my favorite Kirk Douglas performance and Kirk Douglas movie, which has also been discussed on the show. Your predecessor, Maddie, and I did it as part of an After Hours episode. I think a listener actually did suggest it. And they had the honors of picking our film to discuss, and I'm grateful they did. I ended up teaching a Billy Wilder class at the University of Chicago's Graham School one summer, and Ace in the Hole is the movie I couldn't wait to share with people. And that's the one that I would want to start with to do some of my Douglas homework because I, knowing how much you like it and hearing a lot about it over the years, I would love to see that. But the one I'd probably end up starting with is The Bigger Blind Spot, which is Spartacus, the Kubrick film. And I think, as a matter of fact, isn't it in the mix for a potential blind spotting bonus episode for Patreon patrons. I think we have that on That's there, true. which we might get to this year, maybe. Yes, we might do a little bit of epic homework and include Spartacus because you're right. It is a blind spot for both of us. We did want to plug an article written by someone who we have on the show from time to time, Angelica Jade Bastien. She wrote a really nice remembrance of Douglas over at Vulture called What Does It Mean to Mourn the Golden Age of Hollywood? It opens and largely consists of a breakdown of what made Kirk Douglas so good as an actor and what made him so perfect for that role in Ace in the Hole. But as you would expect from Angelica, she also makes it about so much more. She makes it about film noir. She makes it about how we consider legends like Douglas who have these things from their past that have been brought up recently, including some rumors about past involvement with Natalie Wood and also a young actress who disappeared. This was all fairly new to me, Josh, and it has been all just rumors over the years. But what Angelica did was find a way to tie that back to the Douglas persona and also to the misogyny of film noir, which she talks about as a genre that really was trying to comment on that misogyny and perhaps even chip away at it a little bit. And you've got someone like Douglas almost came to personify that misogyny. Yeah, Angelica's stuff is always good, but I would really encourage people to check this one out. I mean, she she digs deep, as you're saying, and I have to think, knowing how much she loves noir, maybe she was able to put this together in the wake of the news, but it is so well considered, so carefully detailed that it it feels like something that she's been working on for months or so. Um, I'm going to tell myself that. Otherwise, I'll be incredibly jealous that she threw this together in a few days. That's the truth. It's really strong. We will link to that article in our show notes over at filmspotting.net if you want to seek it out. Next week on the show, we are beginning a trilogy of episodes that will be devoted to looking back at the past decade. We did this around March 10 years ago, we thought it would be a fun exercise to do again, even though after looking back on the past year so much in December and January, I know we are pretty excited to kind of turn the page and start looking at 2020. It was fun to get to do that with a couple of movies here earlier in the show. But I am excited to count down our top 10 performers of the decade. So actors and actresses, we're going to group them together. We're going to rank them. 
however we see fit. We're going to see how much crossover there is. And of course, a lot of it, as you would expect, and as it should be, it's going to be subjective. It's going to be about the performances that we appreciate the most. But there's going to be some level of consideration of where these performers stood in the zeitgeist, if you will, yeah. over the past 10 years. Yeah, I think, I imagine we'll both take into account things like Oscar nominations, not that they signify ultimate importance, but they do reflect that impact on the culture you're talking about. And we have, this has been an evolving approach to how to consider a decade's worth of acting. At one point, we did talk about doing specific performances. Um, that just felt a little overwhelming, yes. I think. We're, we're already trying to do homework for what we will get to, the best films. Um, and so to try to narrow down and catch up with so many performances, we just didn't know how we'd get our heads around that. So we made the switch to performers and, and figured uh, this might be a, uh, a not easier. I am still feel daunted by it, but yeah. a slightly more manageable approach. Turns out you guys did this. Yeah earlier? It this is was, what we did, 10, what years did 10, ago. 10 years ago. So why not just keep it going? Maybe 10 years from now, we'll do it again. If you have a pick for the best actor or actress of the decade, who's your top performer? You can let us know. Feedback at filmspotting.net or you can find us on social media. You can also leave us a voicemail 312-264-0744 or record an mp3 or other audio file and send it to us speaking of 2020 films there's one that i am looking forward to adam it is the invisible man with elizabeth moss it's also one that you can get a chance at winning a free pass to if you go to filmspotting.net slash events every once in a while we're lucky enough to have some of these admit to passes to give away and that's what's available here the screening itself is on a tuesday february 25 that is in advance of when The Invisible Man comes out. It's going to be at AMC River East in Chicago. So if you want to know how to enter that contest, head on over to filmspotting.net slash events. We also wanted to plug our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. Every two weeks, you will find a new movie pairing, a recent release, and a classic Tasha, Scott, Keith, who all made it out to our live show. It was great to see them. Genevieve Kosky couldn't be there, but this week they are doing their Fantasy Islands pairing. It's part one. Jane Campion's The Piano, pairing that with Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We mentioned it last week. This episode basically should be injected right into your veins. I gobbled it up. It's already in there. It's running through the system, and I'm loving it. Now, I know, Adam, that my opinion on movies, you, you know, you hold in not very high regard. Sure. Scott Tobias's opinion on movies. I mean, you, you yeah. are in lockstep with I am with usually Scott. in lockstep so, with Scott. As, as a skeptic of The Piano, one of my favorite films of all time— mm -hmm. Please listen to Scott. Oh, no. Please. Really? Yes. He's all in on the piano, huh? Oh, of course. Okay. He should be. Well, well, now I will give it. See? It's reconsideration. I knew that would work. of Scott. And, of course, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, one of the best films of last year. We did agree on that. Yes, Josh. we did. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday at midnight. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. More info at nextpictureshow.net. Now it's time for Massacre Theater. It's the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting T-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam, myself, and guest Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune massacred this scene. Getting awful tired of taking care of you. If you want to jump in, I'll take care of you. <laughs> what is this now? You, you're going to take care of him? Come on, tell me about it. The sheriff's got himself a girl. Oh, oh God. Oh, no, we ain't going to yeah. go through that again, are we? You're going to do the same thing dude done? No, I ain't going to oh, do it. I just can't stand it. Well, why don't somebody tell me these things? Where are you going? Where are you going? Let him go, Stumpy. 
No fooling the sheriff. Got a sheriff a girl? I think so, but uh, he doesn't know it yet. <laughs> you got him on the run, huh? She sure has. <laughs> I can just see him laying down the law door. I told you to get back in there. <laughs> and then get told off yourself. <laughs> so that was Walter Brennan as Stumpy, Dean Martin as Dude, and John Wayne as Sheriff John T. Chance in 1959's Rio Bravo, written by B.H. McCampbell, Jules Firthman, and Lee Brackett, directed by Howard Hawks, and... Yes, it was part of our Oscars special show with Michael Phillips a couple weeks back. So why Rio Bravo? Well, probably obvious if you've been paying attention to this episode, but let's see what listeners came up with. Rob in Rockville, Maryland writes, Beyond the obvious connection to your 15th anniversary screening, John Wayne was perpetually snubbed by the Oscars until he won a Lifetime Achievement Award in 1974, proving the Academy missing major talents is nothing new. Here's Tom Morris from Clinton, Tennessee. You picked Rio Bravo, and for some reason, Adam thought he was playing Matt Damon instead of Dean Martin. Hey, I will take it. (laughs) I'll have to listen to that again. Josh was average as John Wayne. No, I I was a fail, Tom. I was a fail. But Michael Phillips was the greatest Walter Brennan since Robin Williams did his impressions in Good Morning Vietnam. Henrik Hansen in Yalding, Kent, UK. Now, Josh, when you did the film spotting meetup in the UK, did you meet Henrik? Is that close enough to London? I don't think Henrik made it. Okay. Well, maybe he'll make it out for me when I come there this summer. Uh, Yes, that would be nice. I'm excited about that. More details about a London film spotting meetup coming in the near future. Henrik says, okay, here's my question. Have you ever considered having a Massacre Theater acting award, like adding it to your rap party? (laughs) Because Michael Phillips' performance of Walter Brennan was outstanding, and his performance of Walter Brennan impersonating John Wayne was even better. Two performances in one for Michael. I agree. I agree with that. Andy Marquis is from Minatrista, Minatrista, Minnesota. To hear the great Michael Phillips channeling his inner Walter Brennan just might be the highest point of your entire podcast run, and I've listened to almost all of your episodes. So Andy, with maybe a little bit of a backhanded compliment there, 15 years of in-depth film talk and Michael coming in and acting like Stumpy was (laughs) the highlight. So really, the official tie-in of that massacre theater was to our 15th anniversary. It's the best part of our show ever. And you know what? I'm not sure that we can really argue with Andy. Thanks to everyone who wrote in. Thanks to everyone who entered. Josh, you're going to reach into the hat fairly brimming this week and pick out the winner. The winner is Dan Buckler from right up the road in Milwaukee. Congratulations, Dan. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. We have no new Massacre Theater this week, and if there were any conspiracy theorists out there wondering if we just decided to shut it down, <laughs> that would be a good after way Michael, to go out. Yeah, we probably should. But in truth, we do typically take a hiatus from Massacre Theater during this time of year when we get into film spotting madness. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This madness. But this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! Sparta, Josh. (laughs) Madness could get bloody. We're opening with 300. Yes. Wow. (laughs) It is time for Film Spotting Madness, our sixth annual bracket-style tournament. The last couple of years have kind of been leading up to this year's tourney. In 2018, we did the best of the 90s. The Coen Brothers' Fargo came out on top in that contest last year. It was the best of the 2000s. Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood beat out Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind in that final. And now 
It's 2020, a new decade, and we consider the best of the 2010s. And you know what? Both the Cone brothers and Paul Thomas Anderson have pretty high seeds in this tournament. One of them could win it again. We will have to take that into account in our prediction brackets. There you go. We kind of ease into these tournaments with a play-in round, though the play-in round has significantly expanded. Shocking. Sam and I decided to try to jam in every movie we maybe were even slightly feeling bad about leaving off. We're trying to appease everyone, mm-hmm. but we actually do like these contests. We found some connecting tissue here, Josh. We've got 17 of them. Now, if you're one of those people who's like, you know what? Film spotting madness, it kind of wears me down. I'm not sure I need to listen to them read these picks and go on and on about these polls for what? 20 minutes. No, no one could possibly no feel one. that way, you're Adam. Right. All of your alias is writing in telling us to stop. We're going to go quickly through it. We promise. What we're going to do is we're going to read the matchups themselves, Mm -hmm. and then we'll just very quickly kind of break them down in terms of which ones were the easiest for us to vote in. Yes. Ones that were a little bit tougher, and then the ones that were truly tough. The The ones where you you really, you hovered with your mouse over the pole. That represent the agony. The agony. Of Film Spotty Madness. That's exactly right. So Josh, I'm going to go ahead and take the first eight here. Okay. We can do the rest. We start with the play in we're calling Adam versus Josh. This should be easy. <laughs> yes, I think. For both of us. I think so. Sing Street, my beloved Sing Street yes. versus your beloved Cedar Rapids. Yeah. And, you know, this is not to dump on Sing Street. I think. I think it was among my, like, maybe top 20 of the year that it came out. Um, I just, you know, there are other feel good musical set. Where, where is it set? It's like, it's not UK, Ireland. right? Yeah. It's Ireland. Type movies that I could watch. I how many Dublin. times, how many times, how many movies, I should say, can you see John C. Riley swimming in a pool with a garbage can on his head? I mean, that's, that's what okay. I need. Yeah, by that that's criteria. <laughs> and right away, just based on, I'm going to say it, at least Cedar Rapids, which is a movie I like quite a bit. Right away, all of our credibility with Film Spotting Mattis is just blown right out the window, <laughs> right? Like we're saying these are the best of the 2010s, Josh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, oh, it's, it's probably going to come up again, isn't this it? This week, I'm cutting my list down to the top 50, and it's in contention. Okay. Well, we need to move quicker here. Our Olivier Asayas kristen Stewart collaboration, you can only pick one, Personal Shopper versus Clouds of Sils Maria. Or we have our Oscar-winning backstage dramas play-in. Inyari 2's Birdman versus Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan. There's our comedy play-in, Lonely Island's pop star, Never Stop, Never Stopping, versus Taika Waititi's What We Do in the Shadows. This hurts. Driven. The poll is just called Driven because you can go with Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive, a certain type of literally driven artist, and Damien Chazelle's Whiplash about the ambitious jazz drummer. We have an extra Anderson, and that betrays the fact that there's at least one other film from Wes Anderson and at least one other film from Paul Thomas Anderson that did make the big dance. So this is an extra one. You can decide whether or not PTA's Inherent Vice is going to make it in or Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom is going to make it in. Alex Garland also has a matchup here. You have to choose Ex Machina or Annihilation. And my last one, Horror Ari Aster's Hereditary, his debut, or Robert Eggers' debut, The Witch. Both of those filmmakers had movies that came out this past year, including Eggers' The Lighthouse and Aster's Midsummer. you got to pick which debut you appreciate more. All right, our next batch here is the Jim Jarmusch face-off, Only Lovers Left Alive versus Patterson. 
The Ryan Johnson Face-Off is our next category, Last Jedi versus Knives Out. And then we have two films from Kenneth Lonergan against each other, Manchester by the Sea versus Margaret. Margaret, one of those that I still need to catch up with. How about an extra Quentin Tarantino? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that's already in it contest. Is. It's there. So now we have to decide which of these two is going to make it as well, Django Unchained or Hateful Eight. How about the Denis Villeneuve face-off? We have Arrival, three choices here. Arrival versus Blade Runner 2049 versus Sicario. Only pick one. Only one is going to make it. We also have three films from Edgar Wright going against each other. Scott Pilgrim, World's End, or Baby Driver. Again, only one will make it. How about these superheroes going up against each other? Avengers Endgame versus Black Panther versus Logan. Wait, we're not done. Versus Wonder Woman. Yeah. And in early voting, it looks like Logan and Black Panther are a virtual tie. Kind of surprising to you? Yeah, maybe a little bit. I thought Endgame would probably take it. And there is some early voting because not only are these play-ins available now at filmspotting.net, but filmspotting newsletter subscribers, they got the list on Monday. They got to get their votes in early. One of the benefits of signing up for the newsletter, which you can do at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. All right. Another pairing here to Yorgos Lanthimos films. The Lobster is going up against The Favorite. Now, we already have a Lanthimos film in there. Do. Don't worry, Dogtooth fans, that did make the it's cut. In, and that's a good transition to our final category, which is Golden Brick winners. Josh, we put Dogtooth in. This is our annual award that goes to our Overlook Film of the Year. Dogtooth is in. Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing is in. That leaves eight other options We just couldn't choose between our babies here, so we're giving you all of them. You can pick between Cleo Barnard's The Arbor, Andrea Arnold's Wuthering Heights, Jeremy Sunye's Blue Ruin, Sean Baker's Tangerine, Anna Rose Homer's The Fitz, Koganada's Columbus, Bing Liu's Minding the Gap, and even our last winner of The Golden Brick, Joe Talbot's The Last Black Man in San Francisco. This one really has been neck and neck. There's three or four titles bunched up at the top right now. So I can't wait to see how it all shakes out in terms of the play-ins that stood out to me as the easiest, the ones that I could just pretty quickly pick my winner. Black Swan versus Birdman. I'm down on Birdman. I like Black Swan quite a bit. And the Edgar Wright trio of films there. I do like Scott Pilgrim versus the world. But I'm not so high on Baby Driver. And for me, The World's End was a pretty easy choice. These other four are cases where I do like both films quite a bit, but one is still a decided winner for me. Sing Street over Cedar Rapids, Arrival as the Denis Villeneuve film over Blade Runner 2049 and Sicario. I do prefer Only Lovers Left Alive to Patterson in the Jarmusch matchup. And, yeah, still a fan of Ex Machina over Alex Garland's latest Annihilation. What about you? All right, so my easy grouping, I think, you know, Clouds of Sils Maria, I do like quite a bit more than Personal Shopper, so that's not hard. I'm a Birdman fan. I didn't think it was one of the best films of the year, but I like it. And I've got to revisit Black Swan because it sounds like the sort of thing that I should really like, and I didn't go for it the first time. So that was easy for me, Birdman. Uh, Let's see here. What else would be pretty easy? Well, you know, I like Inherent Vice, but come on. Moonrise Kingdom. Of course. You know I'm going that way. I'm with you. Ex Machina, favorite film of that year. So that is going to get my vote over Annihilation. Um, Last Jedi, I like, but Knives Out worked for me a lot more. That is my vote there. Django Unchained is probably one of my top three, I think it is. I think it is. uh, Tarantino films. And Hateful Eight is way at the bottom. So that's pretty easy. I'm a big fan of Blade Runner 2049. That is easy as well. And then my last easy one is probably The Lobster 
over the favorite okay. just because like the favorite, but lobster was in my top 10 that year. So my next set of tougher choices, you mentioned three of them picking between knives out and the last Jedi. And it feels like the last Jedi has become so divisive that I almost want it to continue just for that reason, not because it bugs people, but because it then feels significant. It feels like one of those films that has obviously dominated the discourse for at least the past few years. But I do prefer Knives Out, and it's the film that got my vote. Django Unchained, I do have higher on my Tarantino list than The Hateful Eight, even though, unlike you, I'm a fan of both films. And I like both those Asayas films quite a bit with Kristen Stewart, but Clouds of Sils Maria, my preference over Personal Shopper. The Witch versus Hereditary was a tough one for me because I'm a little bit mixed on both films. But when I think about the one that I most want to rewatch and reconsider, it's the Robert Akers. It's The Witch. Of all those golden bricks... And man, there are obviously some great titles there. You know what stands out as my favorite film, I think, of the bunch? When you also throw out The Act of Killing and Dogtooth, it's Coconata's Columbus. That's the one I would most like to see advance into the tournament. In my Driven Artists play-in, I do like Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive over Chazelle's Whiplash. Those superhero matchups... I kind of want to see Black Panther move on because I'd really like to see Ryan Coogler continue in the tournament. I also very much liked his creed from this decade, but we were both pretty high on Endgame. And in terms of being able to stick the landing, so to speak, and you think about how it and the Avengers dominated the discourse as well, that is my pick there. Finally, in the Lonergan battle, I do have Margaret just beating out Manchester by the sea. All right. My tougher choices, the driven category was one for sure. I think I'm with you. I think I have to go with drive over whiplash, but that's that's not an easy choice to make. Um, I'm going to say, boy, the Jarmusch one, I, my instinct is to say only lovers left alive. But I have a feeling if I watched Patterson again, that one might stick to me. A little more, and I may be under, even though I liked it a lot, I may be underappreciating it. So that's really hard. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna say that that's probably the case. I'm gonna go with Patterson and the Edgar Wright one. For me, it's between World's End and Scott Pilgrim. I'm with you. I think we were both a little let down by Baby Driver and uh, Scott Pilgrim. Just uh, watching scenes again from it today, and it, it has that vitality to it that makes me smile. That's where my vote is gonna go. The superheroes category is a tough one, and the weird thing is, I think initially I gave. Uh, Endgame a higher star rating over Black Panther, but the more that I have watched Black Panther, um, I've just come to appreciate it. So I think that's my vote as well. But it's tough, not an easy one. And then the brick category, tough, but I think there's one, and I'm not going to spoil this because there is one brick contender that might be among my top 20 films of the decade. Hmm. And so that's where I would vote now. So it's a tough choice. These are obviously all good films that I feel really strongly about. um, But I I think there's one I know where I'd go. Can I just playfully guess between two films what it might be? Yeah, yeah, I won't give you an answer. Okay. I could see some Sean Baker love with Tangerine. I could see Anna Rose Homer and The Fits as well, which for the record, our producer, Sam Van Halgren, that's his pick in this poll. That leaves us with three, at least for me. There are three that were the toughest. Actually, it was tough to choose which Lanthimos because I am a big fan of both The Favorite and The Lobster, but The Lobster for me is the more enduring enigma. And it's the one, again, I most want to revisit, which is what I consider maybe preeminent 
when I am thinking about which film is going to survive and which film is going to go into the fire pit that we claim the discarded movies are going to go into. The Anderson matchup, Josh, was certainly one of the toughest for me, and that's despite all of my love and affection for Paul Thomas Anderson up there is, if not my favorite filmmaker, he's certainly in the top two. But Moonrise Kingdom is one of my favorite Wes Anderson films as well. After a lot of deliberation, I did ultimately give the edge to PTA. Oh, yeah, I really? did. And look, that Moonrise Kingdom, he doesn't though, man, stand that... a chance against Wes and Moonrise Kingdom. I think the voters are going to be on your side, but yeah. I'd go PTA. I just love that Phoenix performance. It, it's good. I love Inherent Vice, but Moonrise just, it, it, it's one of those, all of his get better with repeat viewings, but that's one I feel like I underrated and have watched many times hmm. since, and it's it's so great. So the toughest. Yeah. So the, the single toughest for me. Yeah. There was a clear number one, having to pick between pop star, never stop, never stopping. I, I am with you. And YTT's <laughs> what we totally do in the you. shadows because I think both are hilarious. I can't imagine a world where one of those films doesn't exist. But you have to, and that's how I chose. Yeah, and that made it then a little bit easier. It's and the YTT. It is. I just, as I, the aching from laughter. Right. The hurt. The good hurt was just a little more with what we do in the shadows. Yeah. Yeah. That was, so that was my toughest choice. Okay. I did have one other real killer here, and that was in the horror category because, boy, those two debuts from Ari Aster yeah, with Hereditary and Robert films. Eggers' The Witch just knocked me out. Uh, but I think that I am with you. Uh, I have slight issues with both endings of those films, and they're slighter with the witch. So I think I would go with the witch. Okay. Well, we can't wait to get all of your votes in and to read some of your comments as well. Film spotting madness, the best of the 2010s will officially kick off in a couple of weeks. What you can do right now is get your votes in, in those playoff polls. We do have a week between our next show, Josh, where we announce the official final bracket. We tally up all these votes and see what the final 64 looks like. So that's coming in a few weeks. But please do vote now. Filmspotting.net slash madness. That's the enthusiastic crowd that made it out this past Saturday night to help us kick off our 15th anniversary tour. Our host for that event we're our great friends at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago. We did screen Howard Hawks' Rio Bravo in 35mm, and you tweeted about this, Josh. Watching Rio Bravo with a crowd mm-hmm. really is a lot different than sitting at home and watching it on your couch. You've got the difference in watching a print versus watching a DVD sure. and watching a smaller screen, but it really was watching it with that crowd. Would you say we asked, and, and judging by the applause, maybe half of the audience had seen it before, mm-hmm. something like that. So what that means is they're anticipating you know, the laugh lines, and they're che- like literally cheering when characters show up. And that's something you can only get from, from a classic mm-hmm. that people know well and love well, and it becomes a whole different experience that's what it was. We did Talk Rio Bravo. We had a little Q&A about the show's history. And we had our friend Michael Phillips from the Tribune join us, as did the original co-host of this show and current producer, Sam Van Hallgren. The whole show 
was presented by our friends at Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film, whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, a movie you've been dying to see, or one you've never heard of before, there's always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you'll never spend more time looking for something great to watch than actually watching something great. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. Try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi dot com slash film spotting that's m-u-b-i dot com slash film spotting for a whole month of great cinema for free during the live event we talked about how 15 years of doing this show has been really about the thrill of discovery for us and there's maybe not a more exciting movie platform than movie when it comes to discovering films two premieres coming up this weekend over at movie they have a streaming premiere of louis garrell's 2018 film a faithful man you may know garrell as Professor Bear in Greta Gerwig's Little Women. It was co-written by frequent Luis Buñuel collaborator Jean-Claude Carrier, and the movie playfully shifts between drama and comedy, subtle murder mystery, and love story. Mubi also has Luca Guadagnino's latest film. You may remember him from Call Me By Your Name and most recently Suspiria. This one, straight from Cannes 2019, The Staggering Girl. It's a short film made in collaboration with Valentino's creative director, Pierpaolo Piccioli. It stars Julianne Moore, Mia Goth, Kyle MacLachlan, and Kiki Lane. Movie says The Staggering Girl unfolds with the mysteriousness of a dream, sumptuous and elusive. Again, you can check out both of those films and more over at mubi.com slash film spotting. Let's go ahead and share the audio of our evening at the Music Box. Josh, we're going to start with our Rio Bravo setup and we'll get right into the post-screening discussion and Q&A. On the organ, Dennis Scott. Thank you so much. A unique venue and one of the unique pleasures certainly of coming here. So thank you very much for the intro music there. We are curious about some of the people in attendance. We've been able to talk with a few of you before the show, but how many people did start listening back in 2005? Anybody? Round of applause. Go ahead and clap. Okay, not bad. How about anybody who just started listening like in the past year or so? Nice. Okay. Well, welcome to the newcomers. I'm, I'm a newcomer myself, really. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm but it's going... not that new anymore. It's like eight years. Yeah. Can you believe that? Yeah, but I'm still the new kid on the block. So, yeah. so how about people who have seen Rio Bravo before? And how many of you have seen it on the big screen? See, there we go. Yes, this is why we're doing this. Yeah, yeah it's first time for us, too. So we wanted to talk a little bit about that and kind of set up the movie here a little bit before we get in. And what we're going to do, of course, is come back after. We'll have some guests join us on stage. We'll talk a little bit about the movie. We'll answer a few questions from film spotting listeners as well. But this is a movie we've talked about it on the show. It goes back to actually 2006, the, the first marathon we ever did on the show was a Western a week marathon where we talked about eight Westerns and listeners had a huge part in picking those movies. And Rio Bravo was an essential film, the fifth movie in that marathon. Now, I actually went back and listened and I never go into the archive, trust me. I don't even go two shows deep in the archive. I went back and listened to the show. Cinecast is what we were known at the time. Cinecast 46 from October and Sam, do you know how much time? Where's Sam? Sam, do you know how much time we gave to Rio Bravo? Six minutes. 
<laughs> no, it was about it was about eight, maybe wow. eight total. Josh you, and you I covered everything, I'm sure. Yeah, we don't talk about the weather for eight minutes. It's pretty crazy that we only gave it that much time. We were gushing about it, and also we seemed to be trying to set a record for how fast we could talk. I don't know. I don't know what that was. Maybe we've matured and we talk slower now. I don't know. Is this leading towards your blaming the extended show length on me? Is that 100%. where we're going here? I don't like. I, I don't mean, like. <laughs> incorrect. You can see when it happens in the archive. So I mean, I think you're to blame. But yeah, it's. This is a movie for us that felt like an obvious choice to watch here, not only because we selfishly wanted to see it on the big screen, but it does go back to those marathons and kind of what has made the show so special for us for 15 years, which is that listener contribution, interacting with you guys, and also really the thrill of discovery, because we certainly came into this not ever feeling like we had all the answers about cinema, did we, Sam? No. And we were kind of shocked that people were listening to us talk about these movies, but this has been a film school for us for 15 years, and the marathons in particular. Well, we're still doing that today. I mean, last year, looking at the Marlena Dietrich and Joseph von Sternberg marathon, those were films we didn't see for the most part, have never seen before. So, But yeah, to that listener uh, participation part, the one thing I love about the marathons, and they are part of my one of my favorite parts of the show, really, uh, is if you're on Letterboxd, as we are often, and we're doing a marathon, you'll see something like Shanghai Express pop up in a feed, you know, in your feed a couple of times. And sure enough, you start to recognize the names and you get this sense that we're doing it for the show, um, but there's a whole group of people out there who are watching these movies along with us. And of course, sending in feedback with email and so forth. But it's just kind of cool when you're scrolling through Letterboxd and you'll see a familiar movie pop up and know that's what's going on, that you guys are out there doing this alongside us. So a little bit of background on Rio Bravo for those who haven't seen it or maybe those who have and are wondering why they're back watching it again. I uh, wanted to provide some perspective on the movie and why it is such an essential film. Uh, 1959, uh, written by Jules Furthman and, and Lee Brackett, who collaborated on another Howard Hawks film, The Big Sleep. And actually, Lee Brackett, she was one of the credited screenwriters for the younger, not younger anymore, people in the audience on The Empire Strikes Back with Lawrence Kasdan. She wrote the first draft of that. So uh, a collaborator more than once with Howard Hawks. And in 1962, the British Film Journal movie published their first ranking of directors. And they had these tiers for the filmmakers. And they had only two that they called brilliant. And those brilliant directors were Alfred Hitchcock and Howard Hawks. And Really, the, the kind of sentiment that Hawks was one of these essential great directors it kind of wasn't in the, the popular culture at the time. It wasn't the conventional wisdom until around those, those mid-60s, the late 60s. Andrew Saris, uh, eventually he of, you know, really popularizing the auteur theory, he wrote a book in 68 called The American Cinema, Directors and Directions. And he, he ranked from 1929 up to 1968 every filmmaker, and he had these tiers as well. He had names for them. Josh, you'll never guess what he called the top level of directors. Pantheon. He called it the Pantheon. <laughs> we didn't know that, Sam, when we, when we did this. It was not an homage to, to Saris, but uh, Chaplin was in there, Ford was in there, Hitchcock was in there, maybe about 10 others, but Hawks was one of those essential filmmakers, and you definitely will get an argument uh, about it. Michael, I'm sure, who's over here and you're going to hear from later, Michael Phillips would surely disagree as much as he likes Hawks and likes Rio Bravo, but he worked in so many different genres. You can make a case he made the best film in all of those different genres, whether it was his musical or his film noir or, of course, his western. And Quentin Tarantino, this is a film he 
adores and says it's not only probably Hawks' greatest film, it's probably John Wayne's greatest film. He says it's probably the greatest Western, and he calls it the ultimate hangout movie. And so that kind of feels appropriate for all of us tonight as we're hanging out together. But he says by the end of the film, you really become friends with these characters. And I think that is something essential to Hawks and, and this film, and, and one of those things that really does uh, make it unique. He actually quotes the critic Robin Wood, who wrote a book on Hawks, who says that if there was ever one movie that justifies the existence of Hollywood commercial cinema, it's Rio Bravo. And Hawks liked it so much, he remade it twice, basically, Rio Lobo and El Dorado. And John Carpenter, who we just talked about recently on the show as part of our 8 from 84 series with Starman, he adored Rio Bravo, kind of remade it himself with Assault on Precinct 13 as well. And he, kind of echoing Tarantino, said this about the movie, it's almost like watching a piece of classical music. It's slow and elegant and it doesn't rush and it goes from one movement to the next and it carries you along with it. So I think for me tonight, that's the thing, as I have seen the movie, but it's recently, but it's been maybe five to seven years ago, not, not that recent. One of the things I'm most eager to really pay attention to is Hawk's craftsmanship, despite the fact that being ostentatious was anathema to him as a filmmaker. You're not going to get any bravura tracking shots. You're not going to get any crane shots. There's not much with the editing. He's not going to do flashbacks or, or montages, and yet you can't really say the filmmaking is boring. So that, that's, no. that craftsmanship is what I want to pay attention to. Yeah, I think, well, I think the craftsmanship we'll probably end up talking about is things like blocking and, and framing and the composition and how it is subtle, um, but incredibly effective. And as Adam mentioned, Hawks made other Westerns, but some of the other titles you might have thrown out there, but um, just to, to put in the context of what Hawks was doing was not only these Westerns, but His Girl Friday, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which I just saw, speaking of in, you know, continuing your education a couple years ago, and is brilliant is a Hawks film, um, and something like to have or have not. So um, yeah, a wide array of films that, that he made. And as far as Rio Bravo, um, it, it's, it hits all the Western tropes and definitely fits that bill, but somehow does it, touches them lightly um, and has fun with them. There's a looseness to this picture, Hangout, um, that I think you'll feel, especially if you are steeped in Westerns, and if you're not, if this is your first Western, um, it's a great introduction. So, is this the first Western for anybody? Okay, no. so we got, yeah. Okay, well, honestly, back in, in 2005 or six when we watched it, it might have been for me. I mean, I, was, I always kind of deliberately avoided them. They were the movies my dad liked to watch that I thought seemed really boring, and I didn't want to be into any of the things my dad was into. So, um, hopefully, Sophie, my daughter in the audience tonight, will will not feel that way, and will enjoy Rio Bravo, as will the rest of you. I think she you. will. Yeah. So any, anything else we need to get to before we start it? I don't think so. I mean, um, we'll touch on some details afterwards. Uh, Michael Phillips will be with us to help us do that, and we'll hear from Sam Van Hogren as well. Um, so that should be fun. Can't promise it'll be as good as the movie. Thank you all for coming. Enjoy the film. We'll talk after. Rio Bravo, with its thundering story of raw courage against overwhelming odds, and its once-in-a-lifetime combination of today's hottest star names. You've seen nothing like them together, and here at Rio Bravo, nothing can tear them apart.
I don't know how we, how do we follow Rio Bravo? We're going to have to try, be, yeah. Yeah, we are. So we're going to need some help to do it, I think. And we can't really perform my rifle, my pony, and me without this being at least a trio. So uh, we're going to bring up the, uh, the guy who I started this show with 15 years ago and who still somehow is the producer of the show, Sam Van Hallgren. Please come to the stage. Hi, Sam. <laughs> Welcome, Sam. Hey. And you. we thought that we needed some star power for yeah. this event, for a 15th anniversary celebration. He may do the best Walter Brennan impression this side of the Mississippi, but to us, he's Ricky Nelson. From the Chicago Tribune, Michael Phillips is going to join us. Hi, Michael. He's got the vest, he just needs the badge, <laughs> and you'd be perfect. So I don't, I don't know completely where to start with this, but the line that really jumped out to me this time, the line that I think is the line of the movie in a lot of ways, and also the line that sort of best exemplifies Hawks as a filmmaker, is when the dude says, when dude says to, to John Wayne, uh, he's asking about the Ricky Nelson character, about Colorado, and says, how good do you think he is? And he says, well, he, he seems to be pretty good, so good he doesn't have to prove it, right? Which in a lot of ways is really what this film is about. These, these characters who um, don't want to have to prove it, but if they do, they can. they can. They can back it up, and actions certainly speak a lot louder than, than the words. But also, we were talking about Hawks as a filmmaker. The, the way this film is shot, a lot of medium shots, you know, two and three shots, not a lot of camera movement. Um, very utilitarian, functional. The shots do their jobs, just like the characters in this film uh, do their jobs. And even, you know, the, maybe the best sort of symmetry was seeing that, that great, the, or I'd say the most ostentatious Hawks maybe gets is that, that opening three minutes or so the, that's silent. Right? Yeah, no dialogue. No dialogue, get a little bit of camera movement, kind of shows us the relationships between these characters, the power dynamics in this uh, situation as well. And that, that great shot of cutting down to the dude and we're at his eye level as he looks up at John Wayne and at the end we get the redemption. We get the moment where it's now come full circle, he doesn't want to drink anymore and Hawks puts the camera in that same position, he, he moves it down to, uh, to Dean Martin's level as he's looking back up at John Wayne. So uh, what Michael stood out to you in terms of Hawks as, as a filmmaker watching Rio Bravo? Yeah, it's, I mean, like a lot of people here, I suspect, and if that's true with what you said earlier, Adam, I mean, I mean, Westerns were not why I fell in love with movies. It was not a genre I really found my Western, my, my love in until I was into my 30s, and uh, not writing about film yet. I'd written mostly about film in my 20s, and then did a lot of theater, and then back to film 15 years ago or so, but uh, it wasn't really until I found some of Hawks' westerns that I got over some of my resistance to a lot of western classics, some of them by John Ford, who was a, you know, is, is, is front and center an important filmmaker to this country as anybody. I, it's not, it's not the, he's not the director that got me interested. 
I, I've come around to him. But I, I, what, I, what I've always loved about Hawks' stuff, uh, and he didn't make tons of westerns. He made more aviation pictures. <laughs> uh, and, and, and then he was best known for the stuff I adore, the screw, uh, bringing up Baby and His Girl Friday, and His Girl Friday especially, my God. And, and just, but have you, can you name a director in the, in the world who ever made two temperamentally and also just in terms of rhythm and tempo different films than His Girl Friday and Rio Bravo and they're both good, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's amazing. You could, do, you could do two and a half His Girl Fridays for what we just saw, you know? Um, but I, I think a lot, of, a lot of the stuff I don't love about Westerns, uh, the Westerns I don't like, somehow it all works here. John Wayne uh, is just forced to kind of, um, I don't know, slow down to accommodate this half-assed plot, you know? <laughs> and, and who cares? I mean, I've, I often say, but, you know, story is, is the reason we, we go to, you know, we go to the movies in the first place, but it's not really why we stay in love with the movies. I think it's, you know, kind of how they're told and what... What's up? And also, who would have the nerve to do two musical numbers in a row in the middle of a, uh, you know, I mean, it's just, and, and it's moments like that that take me back to Hawks movies I really, really love in similar ways to this one. Uh, Only Angels Have Wings, Cary Grant, 1939, which is an aviation picture in a way. And, and there's just this scene, and you got the very same female archetype you know, Gene Arthur in that film is just this showgirl who just shows up, you know, on a tramp steamer in a in an unidentified fictional Latin American country with a with a port, and uh, and very similar to like you know, it's like this is this must this man I guess historically chronologically this Angie Dickinson must have been her maw. I guess, you know, her mother back, you know, here she is just sort of like tumbling off the stagecoach. Uh, there's that and to have and to have not is the other one that has the same, hanging around atmosphere, just sort of, you know, a plot inter, inter, interjects, intrudes occasionally, just enough to remind you there's a movie going on, and uh, I don't know, it's, it's what you said in the opening, though, it's, it's the hangout factor is enormous, and, uh, um, uh, and, and some people don't love it, because it's not, the, the engineering isn't in it, you know, it's not like Stagecoach, great film, uh, it's not like, um, well, God knows it's not like The Searchers, which is a very different level of, you know, um, 10 ton seriousness. Great in many ways, not in others. And, but it, you know what I mean? Right around the same time, that was 56, this is 59. This film just doesn't give a shit about what's going on in the culture, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, what was the big film that year? Ben-Hur and On the Beach, the Stanley Kramer end of the world movie that nobody remembers. Uh, this is this is a film that's just it's not a, it's not an end of the world film it's just its own world film that's all. Now, Sam, you only, only angels have wings is the movie you might love even more than Rio Bravo. I was thinking of, I was thinking of only angels have wings the whole time. Uh, I already covered that, Sam. Forget yeah, it. Yeah, so we can move on. Uh, still in my thunder. Um, the thing that really struck me this time was you got this sort of Western convention that was all about like let's give every character an opportunity to be their best under the worst circumstances. When do we get the musical number? It's right after dude pours the liquor back in the bottle without shaking, you know, no quarter, the music's playing in the background, and then, you know, 
he made it. You know, he was his best self. Um, we get it from Angie Jenkinson earlier. She's like, I'm sick of being the, you know, the victim here, going from town to town, being kicked around by the sheriff. I'm done. On my own terms, I'm going to show you who I am, you know, come hell or high water. Um, and I was thinking, it's like, okay, so the dude's okay, and there's a little bit of a lull, and I'm like, we're just going to wrap things up. All we have to do now is just have the big shootout. But then there's Stumpy. Stumpy still needs his redemption. And you see that, you know, with John Wayne, what he's doing, um, you know, he's almost like letting everyone have their moment. He doesn't manipulate. He just is like, I'm going to give you the best chance to be your best self in every case, whether it's the dude or Colorado. And then Stumpy, who he just, you know, he just kicks him all the way down, you know, just so he can, until he stands up for himself. I'm going to go out there and take a shower myself, okay? <laughs> we're gonna, are we going to have a battle? A stumpy off. That'd be stumpy all right off? with you. <laughs> I was going to ask you one thing, Sim. Uh, was you ever stuck by a dead bee? <laughs> I practically guarantee it. <laughs> that, that's what struck me, too, about this revisit, though, is how chance handled all these other characters. You're right, Sam. It's, it's almost like he creates this space. And he doesn't, when he first brings in Dude, he doesn't tell him, okay, here's what you've got to do to earn your badge. He just says, you want to be here, you can be here. Let's see what you do with that. And puts it in his hands and sees how he responds to it. So that really struck me this time around, and it was, yeah, it was incredibly moving, actually. Now, Michael, you mentioned, um, you know, John Ford, who I, I think most people think of as first when it comes to Westerns, and the vistas, right? The grand views of Monument Valley, or whatever it might be, and we don't get that here. Think about when we move at the end to that barn, or whatever it was. It feels like the whole movie has opened up, because we've mostly been in these saloons, or the hotel, or the jail, but what Hawks has done is he's more interested in exploring the emotional contours, the terrain that these characters are experiencing, um, which goes back to exactly what, what you're saying, Sam. It's like, how are each of these people going to respond to this particular situation? And it's not grand vistas, but it's more where characters are positioned in a scene and how they relate to each other. This goes back to the idea of blocking. And, and I mean, Wayne himself, like just placing him in a doorway is all you need to do to emphasize that six Ford foot four. Ford knew that too. Yeah, with the searchers, yeah, certainly. yeah, exactly. It's, it's the use of Wayne as a figure, but the six foot four inch frame. Um, but then even what Hawks does in My Rifle, My Pony and Me, where he creates, if you look at that one shot, this triangle of solidarity. Now you're right, Sam, they're, you know, individually in a good place but collectively, things are looking pretty bad, right? The odds are against them. But what do they do, and this goes back to the, the laconic, sort of laid-back atmosphere of this movie, they're all in it together, and they know that, so they can afford to sing this song together. And you can see there's this triangle where you have Dude in the back, Stumpy in the left, right in Colorado in the right, and it's just connecting them in this, in this bond that they have. So it doesn't really matter what's going on outside. It doesn't really matter where this is gonna end. It may end the worst way it could, but they have each other in this song and this triangle for this moment. And that's, it's all in the music, but it's all in the composition too. We're trained, I think by, we're trained by all kinds of Westerns before and since to just sort of wait for the moment where one of these characters is gonna get killed suddenly, tragically. 
But it's like this film just, just is not interested in that kind of movie. And, and yeah, to your point, it's the Hawks Westerns, and he, again, he didn't make that many, that really do take advantage of more of what you would maybe consider the John Ford realm of, of sort of visual filmmaking in the, in the West. You know, Red River, 1948, um, a great film, although they plainly uh, struggled with the ending, and they all admitted it later. But uh, uh, The Big Sky is really good, too, and not as well-known. Kirk Douglas, who just passed, um, uh, that's, a, that's a really interesting Western with a great musical score. And um, we should talk about the politics, though, too. This is a direct response to High Noon, 1952 a film that Wayne in particular, and Hawks too, hated, hated it. You know, left-wing, commie, collectivism, liberal BS. Uh, you, know, you know, really, really, and it's a great book, uh, Glenn, Glenn Frankel, I think his name is, wrote a book about High Noon and the Blacklist and all the issues that were going on in the, make, in the writing and then the making of it, but Hawks, and Wayne just thought, well, no, you know, what kind of lily-livered sheriff runs around looking for help? You know, is, if you want to take it out of the political realm and just sort of in a belligerent personal realm, okay? Uh, you know, he said, we're going to make a, we're going to do a Western about guys who don't, don't, who actively dissuade the help, okay? From, you know, we're just going to take care of this problem. And the, the funny thing is, though, they don't really turn it into one of these uh, granite-fisted, um, uh, revenge-driven westerns. It's such a relaxed movie. David Thompson, the critic, said, you know, is there a 50s film that's this f free of any strain of any kind? You know? Even to the point of, like, really even cranking the plot in ways that audiences in 59 were, were, weren't used to. It's a two-hour and 20-minute film. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, Wayne was sort of unabashed about hating High Noon for the reasons you said, Hawks, you don't see a lot of the politics in his films ever. And, and really the point for him, and it's the preoccupation, the central preoccupation with his work, it's certainly in Only Angels Have Wings, is this idea of professionalism. And what he couldn't abide was watching a movie like High Noon where Gary Cooper is the marshal. It's his job to stand up to the bad guys, even if they outnumber him, even if they're tougher than him, that's his job. And yet he spends the whole movie running around asking everybody in town for help at the end, it's his wife who has to bail him out, too, which Hawks couldn't stand, right? But he couldn't stand this idea of the, the sheriff not being able to do his job. So he puts John Wayne in a position where even early in the film, right, where it's now his job to go arrest Joe Burdett, even though he's been hit in the head, he's bleeding, he's going to walk into a bar where he's clearly going to be outnumbered. And you know what? That's his job. He's, he's going to take his chances, and that's, that's exactly what he does. And I, I had forgotten about this part. There, there really is a direct response or a direct comment on High Noon in this film, which is the whole part with the Pat Wheeler character, where he hears that Pat is going around town trying to drum up help for him, just like Will Cain does in, in High Noon. And what does he do? He goes up and tells him, you've got to stop doing this. He says he would rather have uh, basically no help at all than a bunch of well-meaning amateurs, right? Which, which is, is so crucial to this idea of if, if, it's not, if it's not what you do and if you're not good enough, if you're not willing to put it on the line, then he has no use for you. You mentioned chance 
getting hit in the head, and that brings me back to what I was thinking with Dude, too. Dude hits him twice in this film, right. and, and he's still there for him, right? He's still creating that space. Can we talk about Feathers? Yeah. Um, Angie Dickinson, because uh, one of the questions that, um, I think it was Timothy Sedlicek might be here, um, but emailed saying, you know, I'm not really into, uh, a listener emailed about this, I'm not really into John Wayne, I, I need to get, get around to John Wayne. And I think one of the great things about Rio Bravo is that it um, provides us a sense of why he was this figure of authority, um, and it also undermines that in a couple of ways. He's terrified and of her. Feathers is the key to undermining him from the right from the bloomers that she show, you know, that when that scene comes in and she calls him on that, um, and when she begins flirting with him and makes him completely uncomfortable and just pushes it. I don't know. Where are you on feathers, Sam? Well, no, I, I think she's incredible, and I, but I, I think to your point, it's like, you know, Wayne is completely in charge the entire time. He never seems completely flustered. He always seems to know how to handle everybody. Until? Until Feathers comes along. <laughs> and that's sort of why she's there. Again, it's like Hawk's preoccupation, I think, you, know, you talked about professionalism, but you know, it's about character. That's the pleasure, is just like watching these, you know, watching these characters you know, interact and how, you know, what is the essence of their characters. And I think, yeah, with uh, Feathers, job in there is to make him uncomfortable to to you know if everyone else has their their huge obstacle to face and feathers and and stumpy and dude you know when he he's out of his element is when she comes along and i think too she's you know she also fits into the grander scheme of making a choice at some point because are you going to stand on the side of what is justice or are you you know you're not quite sure why is she showing interest in chance at the beginning um, she might just be placing her best bet in that situation, right? What we learn is that she could take the, you know, the, the carriage out of town, or maybe she sticks with this guy. He's the sheriff. He seems to know what's going on. Or is there some genuine affection in there? It, maybe it develops. Um, but she has to make that choice that Colorado makes, that Stumpy seems to have made decades ago, <laughs> and that dude is making throughout the film repeatedly whether or not he's going to stick with this at odds, likely not going to succeed, but the right place to be. And she yeah. makes that choice, too. I think, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, it's not, it, this film is not, you know, the film God's gift to feminism. I mean, it's not, you know, it's... Um, but, you know, she, she doesn't ever compromise who she is as an individual. She doesn't compromise, no, no, I'd no. say, her femininity. I will say, this, I will say this. So here's the, here's the issue for me, and it's not an issue. It's just simply, look, we're watching this film from... <laughs> From how what sixty one years sixty one yeah. years later, every film, and this is why teaching film, which I do a little on the side, uh, is is a this is a very interesting time to be doing it because you can everything is is now especially thanks to the last two three years every, we watch everything more critically and in a different way and probably in a more I don't know, interesting, contradictory way, and it's it's we have to be, we all have to kind of learn how to have several opposing views on things we love in different directions. It's just the way it is. But if you just look at the Hawk stuff, this film, you know, the, I wouldn't call what John Wayne and Angie Dickinson have in this film sexual tension. It's just simply kind of a. you know, it's an an innocent sexuality that does sort of absolutely um, kind of 
infantilize John Wayne, I think, a little bit, you know, because she's the only one who knows the score in this thing. But if you go back to earlier Hawks films, uh, it's a very different story with Only Angels Have Wings. Maybe it's just because the stars aren't so radically different in age. Uh, uh, to have and have not, you have an age, a pretty good age spread between Bogart and Bacall, but that film just has a different thing going on. It's just, those relationships are a little more, I think, like amazing to me now, yeah. largely because of the performances. This film is amazing to me for other reasons, just because it's about, in a funny way, even it was a response to High Noon, which was like the tale of, you know, like, you know, trying to get a collective <laughs> together to fight a common enemy. Uh, this is really such a collectivist hangout, you know, a movie that just really honors and enjoys every one of the performers, I think. Now, some of it is sort of, it's bumping up against you know the year it was made and the kind of movie it was trying to be and it's not it's not the kind of western that wins awards this didn't get a single nomination i think yeah it's for perfect. me for me it's not you know that their relationship is romantic at all or or has even any real fizz to it coming from his direction it's all coming i mean he could be a tree he could be a trunk it wouldn't matter it's angie dickinson um but what's interesting about it is how she is undermining the wayne myth throughout this movie, um, while there are other portions of the movie that hold that up. And I think it's that tension that's really interesting in terms of, in terms of Angie Dixon. Well, in a way, her arc kind of ends as soon as she has that big early blowout with Wayne. It's just like, she's said what she has to say, she's here on her own terms, and then the rest of it is just to sort of well, serve and, him. And that's the, movie, yeah. that's the movie you realize about 20, 30 minutes in, right? That, uh, who saw it for the first time here tonight? Okay, for me, you know, it's been 15, 20 years since I've seen it, uh, and it was great to see it not in pan and scan, you know, I think which was the last time I saw it on television, you know, just sort of like, uh, uh, it's like a round, you know, everybody has variations on their theme over and over and over, and in a film about waiting, <laughs> you know, this is how we're going to spend the time, and that's, and it, it, there's a hell of a lot of pleasure in it if it's working for you. You know, and we'll find out if it's working, if it works. Well, I love, we were talking about these characters sort of and, and their actions and their sort of professionalism. And I, I guess it is kind of her profession. I love the touch that in that first confrontation, that first real meeting between them, he says that what she could do is she could, you know, stop playing cards and she could stop wearing feathers. And she says, that's what I do. I play cards. And I wear feathers. And she's not going to stop doing that, right? And even, you know, it, it's kind of a throwaway line. And, you know, Walter Brennan makes the, the most out of every moment he has in the film. But when he's even talking about uh, Joe Burdett and he jokes with him about the fact that he fixed up his bruises, right? And, and he says he'd like him to have a few more scars. Next time, maybe I won't do it. He says, well, no, of course I'll do it. I'm a pro. That's his job. Yeah. His job as the jailer is to... Keep an eye on them. Make sure, you know what? He may not like them. They may be bad guys, but that's partly his job is to make sure that they're well taken care of. This is a and movie about, about a guy named Stumpy. I'm, I'm sorry. That's it. That's, <laughs> that's the only thing. It might just be. There, so, is, a, there is a great story about uh, Walter Brennan. And I, I don't remember the details. Maybe somebody does out here, but uh, it was, I don't know what movie he was on, but uh, let's say it was, um, you know, a Ford. I don't know if it was John Ford, but John Ford was talking to him between takes and you know okay now you know, on this scene you're gonna have to do this and this and this and I think what what the guy's feeling here is this all this and Brennan's like uh-huh uh -huh. and uh and, and then he's done he says he says uh um uh, in or out 
He said, what do you mean? He says, the teeth. You want them in? You want them out? <laughs> and half his career, he's got teeth. The other half, no teeth. That was, that was as deep a psychological probing as Walter Brennan wanted to get into. This is actually the same deal Josh and I made when he joined the show. <laughs> teeth or no teeth, it's his choice. It's fine. Yeah, I've kept him in. Kept him in. So... Any, we do have some other business to get to. We gave it more than eight minutes. I think we did okay here, Sam. Uh, any other closing thoughts? Any surprises this time, if it had been a while since you've seen the movie? Anything that... No, honestly, the, okay, the revelation for me, just how damn good Dean Martin is. Oh, so good. Really good. <laughs> really good. Really good. And, you know, there's a guy... Uh, I, mean, I mean, everyone is in their, a sweet spot. Well, even, I don't know if Ricky Nelson's in a sweet spot. He's doing the best he can under the circumstances. But... <laughs> but uh, until he gets to the song, but uh, but Mar Martin just had there wasn't a speck of performance of uh, hesitance or, or self consciousness. He was the most. He just rolled out of bed and did it, you know. And and that's how it looks. And it's so uh, again, you're you're seeing variations on this theme over and over and over. And and it, the performance has to be that good, or it's just or or that one demon that's plaguing, plaguing this character is going to just exhaust itself and, you know, a half hour in. But it's, I, I find him, you know, I mean, the work he was doing and some came running the year before for Minnelli with, I mean, that's Bama's, I mean, I mean, if, if you look at what, like, Godard and all the other Cahiers de Cinema folks liked about American movies, it was all Dean Martin right around this time, you know, so um, it's, he, he's, to me, he's the, the, the X factor here. All right. Well, I, I guess that's going to close down our Rio Bravo chat. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Adam. Thank you. Hanging out with us and the movie. Where is, where is your guitar? I know. Yeah, I almost you brought teased it. us. I was strumming it earlier today. <laughs> it was not hard to figure out my rifle, my pony, and me. It's two chords. So I could have pulled it off. But I don't think that uh, Michael knows how to play the... Harmonica, though, so I didn't want to put you in a bad position. No, no, I don't. Thank, okay. you. Thank you. But so, I can dance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I frankly, we could just spend the next 10 or 15 minutes doing the Walter Brennan off. I'd be fine with yeah, really? the stumpy off. That, I, I don't see how stumpy that would entertain everyone. So, okay. Walter Palooza. <laughs> it may happen after the show. So we did want to take a moment to acknowledge some other members of the Film Spotting family who are here. Some of you got to chat with them earlier and uh, they're awesome and we're just pleased that they came out and that they've been a part of our family over the past 15 years or so and do an incredible job hosting their own podcast the next picture show Tasha Robinson is here Scott Tobias Keith Phipps where right. are you guys yeah can they stand up can we kind of there we go Scott and Keith Tasha right there thanks guys I'm not going to ask them to stand up because Sarah will kill me, but actual film spotting family members are here as well. We've got the, we've got the wives of film spotting who somehow tolerate us doing this show every week for 15 years. What did we, what did we say, Sam? You didn't have a wife when the show no. started. You in, even in fact, met. up here I'm Sam Hallgren. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> yeah. You changed your name. You got married. Um, so Sarah's here. Debbie's here. Carrie's Indeed. here. We have some kids here. Addie mm -hmm. and B are here. My daughter Sophie. So, uh, yeah, Sophie was nine months old when this show started, and she's a sophomore in high school now. So that's dating, dating myself uh, in a major way. But um, 
I'm glad they, they made it out. We've got some other people who helped the show. You saw Tyler earlier, but Golden Joe Dassault over here, producer, helped us on the WBEZ front. Since 2006, I think, we've been associated and affiliated with WBEZ and worked with Joe, and it's been, it's been great. So with that, we did want to actually mention, we had a little bit, we had an announcement about our next tour date. Yeah, yeah. we've got another one coming. There really is a tour. Yeah, though we've only got one city to announce right now, but Tyler's working. Well, He's working very hard. Two cities hard. makes it a tour. Come yeah, on. <laughs> it, it does. So New York will be in New York City on in June. June 19th, Friday, June 19th at the Bell House. If any of you are in the area or want to fly out to New York City, we're, we're excited about that. You know, if you're a Patreon family member, if you support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash film slotting. Does anybody here Patreon? Anybody sign up? Awesome, thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. You, uh, you get early access to those tickets, so hopefully uh, we'll have some New York area listeners that will want to partake in that. We also were pleased to have Mubi, who's been a regular kind of partner of the show for a decade or so, be part of this event, and they gave us some prize packs to give away. We've got totes with a sticker set, with mittens, with a flip book, and the flip book includes a code that gives you a free year's subscription to Mubi, which is a curated streaming service showing yeah. exceptional films from it's around really the globe. It's really awesome. Yeah, it's a great, great platform. So we are going to give those away. Tyler's got them over there, and this is how we're gonna do it. I mean, this has all been rigged, actually. I have to just, I have to just say this has been rigged because we had attendees we gave them the chance to email us uh, some questions, and we picked a few of them. And I think we've got a microphone. Do we have a microphone that we're going to be able to, to go? Tyler can help with that as well, hopefully. And we picked a few of these questions. And we're going to start with Mark Kozak. Mark, where are you at? Mark's way in the back. Oh, of course. <laughs> come on up, Mark. Well, come on up. Yep. Hi, guys. First of all, congrats on 15 years. Thanks very much. Uh, Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Hopefully 15 more are coming. Um, the most important role of a film critic is, of course, making an ongoing flow of ranked lists, um, which you guys do in abundance. <laughs> it's kind of been the core of what we do. Yeah, the height of so, the art form, indeed. <laughs> um, so just wanted to ask, what are your, some of your favorite rankings that you've done over the last 15 years, series or lists? Uh, yeah, so rank your ranks lists, please. <laughs> Thanks. We, oh, don't think we, I didn't do it. We have, Really know hit I rock bottom, <laughs> ranking our rankings. What are you saying, Josh? Okay. Uh, I think this is what we were always meant to do. So what do you got? All right, so I did rank them. Um, I it's have a Manimals, list. isn't it? I have a list. Manimals is going to get an honorable mention. <laughs> Michael, thank you. I mean, this guy would never have done Manimals. So you guessed it once, and it was wonderful. But also on my list, that's just an honorable mention. Another one, Michael, you did recently, actually, Judy Garland Moments. And this goes back to um, what were your t you were talking about, Adam, in the intro. Um, the idea of discovery. Before I you know, started with film spotting, Judy Garland was in The Wizard of Oz. That was it. Um, and embarrassingly, I had been working as a professional film critic for years. Um, and... So this was an example of really digging into, we had seen her in some films here and there over the course of the years, but um, this was a chance to really do our homework and, and take in everything that she had done, which was remarkable. And um, so that's one of my favorites. Um, the Chris's power rankings, <laughs> Andy yes. Mitchell. 
is somewhere out there, came up with that idea. And uh, essential cinematic work, ranking the Chris's. You know, we did, too, just get an email from a listener who had recently heard that show for the first time. They're demanding a re-ranking. They are demanding a re-ranking because they were wondering, and I wouldn't have even remembered where I ranked this, Chris, honestly, even though I like that list, too. And they basically said, after Knives Out, do we feel bad about the fact that Chris Evans was third on our list? I think he's pushing pine at this point. Okay. So I think we need, I think we need to redo that. All right, really quickly. Uh, here's another one we did with you, Michael. A top five movie costumes we would wear. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. Um, Funny how I'm, I'm, I'm near every single successful element of the show. I, I mean. know. It's kind of, yeah, it's really curious. And somehow you're blanking <laughs> on all these yeah, experiences. He's like, what? I did that? Um, a far more serious one, but th- these, you know, when someone of stature passes away, it is a chance to really delve into um, their career. And for Robin Williams, that was a case where we did that and went back and I got to watch some of his stand-up for the first time. Um, and that was a very rewarding list. And then one more here. Sam, you were on this one. Non-kids movies to show your kids. Rio Bravo on my list. Rio Bravo was yeah. on your list. So it all comes around. I love doing that one. So the only approval I need, actually, when I do a show, especially a top five list, though, is... Sam having something positive to say about it. I mean, really, at the end of the day, he's the only only critic I care about. Good show, Adam. That's what I need. So as the person who certainly has been responsible for actually making these top fives sound professional, adding the elements that you add to them, cutting out, I'm sure, lots of inane things that we say, have you had any that stand out? Oh, well, to, to Josh's point, it is it is the Robin Williams, it's the Philip Seymour Hoffmans, and it, just because they're emotional to assemble. But also the one that really got me that we got to do that wasn't that was Spike Lee. It was like Spike Lee scenes. It was like we're I think doing. It might this. have been images almost. Oh, or images. Shots. It was shots. It was exactly. shots. It was, it was like so shots. granular, and yeah, I yeah. like those two. Because it was about like this is uh, this is a you know this is a, a filmmaker who's at the height of his powers, who has many years ahead of him, you know, God bless. Um, and it's, we're not, we're not doing this just because, you know, we won't see any more. So that was, I remember really that really striking me. Um, but also the things that are really fun to assemble are something like when we had Stephen Hyden on for the top five classic rock scenes and movies or something like that. Just, just a huge amount of fun to produce. And uh, yeah, those are the ones that stand out. Well, I wasn't joking. I ranked them. So... <laughs> I've got my top five, top fives. I'm not above some navel gazing. So, and and in, in classic me fashion, I have a cheat and a tie at number five. So, yeah, I know it's, it's shocking, right? So I think for me, everyone, honestly, great, great choices. I agree with all of those and thought of a few of them. But for me, the, the ones I think I like the most are the ones that get me out of my comfort zone a little bit, where it's not just about looking at something you can kind of easily define, you know, it's, it's a certain shots by a certain filmmaker, as rewarding as that was, or we're, we're talking about our favorite films within a certain genre, and you're kind of checking some different boxes, it's the ones that end up being a little bit more personal, and you gotta get creative with them. So, at number five, actually, our first live show ever was uh, episode number 400, and we did the top five things we learned from the movies, and then I'm pairing that with episode 694, the top five things we learned from podcasting about the movies. <laughs> it was, and that, that was in, in celebration of our 700th episode, I think. Dave, Dave Chen, Chen right? came yeah. on, and that was obviously a prolific podcaster, and that was really interesting to, to kind of share those memories with him and talk about 
just the medium of podcasting and, and what we have learned as, as critics and really as people since we've started doing the show. Number 680 is my number four, top five, two real parenting moments. When you see yourself in those, those moments on screen when maybe uh, parents aren't at their best. Uh, another anniversary show, uh, number 600, with Chuck Klosterman. Top five movies future historians will remember. Even though I don't look back on this one, I'm not particularly proud of my picks. I think it's a case where the criteria and the topic itself was so interesting that I could not match in any way what Chuck Klosterman did with his list. And of course, he's the guy who came up with the topic, so I, I suppose that should probably be the case. But it's one I think about just the thrill of having him on and kind of doing a topic as, as crazy as that. Number 678, Film Spotting's Avengers. Was that our, I mean, it had to be our top five for Endgame, or? Yeah, it was another Andy Mitchell. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a superhero movie had come out. But so, you know. Kind of looking at, our, at our, favorite, our favorite people in film, it could be critics, it could be actors, it could be cinematographers or directors, whatever it is. And, uh, but thinking about it, and this, this, I think what I'm proud of with this list, more praise for Sam, is that I approached it the way Sam used to approach lists sometimes, and I'd say, wow, I didn't do that much work <laughs> at all. Like, I didn't, I didn't put that much creativity into it. And this one I did where I thought about it actually in terms of kind of how they would function as a unit if yeah. they actually were fighting crime or something, solving the world's problems. Like Lin-Manuel was I gave, on there, I gave, right? I gave, all, I gave all of them their own superpower. So anyway. It was awesome. Pat myself on the back, I guess. And then, come on, episode 491, top five movie tattoos we'd get. Yes. Oh, yeah, that was Which, which we still That's have what, not gotten any yeah, of these. Unless this you're is where Adam out. takes off his shirt. Yeah, and shows turns you. Turns around. Someday. And if I remember your number one, it's going to go from here to, like, your ankles. <laughs> yeah, no, it hasn't happened. So we got a rowdy crowd tonight, guys. Um, I, think, I think that means it so must be time to get off the stage. I think we got some of the little women people at the wrong theater. I think. <laughs> That's it. So... Let's go to our next question, Ryan Thompson from Chicago. I guess I wasn't the only one to ask what your uh, top five top fives were. Exactly. <laughs> we did hear that quite a bit. But you had a few good ones, and uh, probably we picked the easiest one, but I don't know. Uh, yeah. Uh, first of all, thanks for putting this together. I love the film, and uh, it was great to see it on, uh, on film. Uh, speaking of film, um, shameless plug for this theater I love so much. They've got a... Uh, Absolutely. We've got a 70 millimeter film festival coming up in, in March. Uh, I know you guys have attended in the past and talked about it on the show, wondering what you guys are looking forward to this year. Yes, I, I like this question because it gives some more love to this great theater. The Music Box and the 70 millimeter film festival is a thrill um, of every year uh, when it's here. And Michael, are there any films? Have you looked at the lineup that jump out to you? Yeah, there's a lot of and a lot, some of this is just aesthetics in that I've, I've heard from at least one of the folks who work here that the print of Hello Dolly, which is uh, a film that has not been shown in the festival in the past, is apparently like pristine, unbelievable, like it just opened in 69, kind of beautiful. So whatever one thinks of the film, uh, you will see it in the best possible way you can possibly see it in this century. Nice, that's a nice thing to say. Um, I mean, I've never seen Khartoum in my life. Who's seen, you know, the, the, that's 1966, and that's, that's one that's just like, wow, that's right. But there's, a, there's a finite list of a few dozen movies out there that qualify for a festival like this, and some of the prints are very hard to get, and sometimes the studios circulate them more easily than others. I mean, it took them forever to get Disney to cough up Sleeping Beauty, I mean, like years and years, and that was something to see that here 
with literally uh, not a seat empty. And um, but in terms of blow-ups too, there's also 70 millimeter blow-ups they show. There's a lot of that, and I I've never seen the Untouchables. De Palma's the Untouchables in any kind of 70 format, and that's the director who really knows how to fill out a wide screen, even if he didn't shoot it in 70. And so, just personally, as a Chicagoan, looking at a, one of the quintessential Chicago movies on a big screen, I really want to, you know, I really, I'm, I'm eager to see that. So yeah, that's, that's uh, I'll be here at least four or five times. Yeah, Hello Dolly is tempting. Um, I, I saw it for the first time a couple of years ago, just at home, and wasn't wild about the movie, but as, in terms of the expansiveness, I would be tempted to give it another shot on 70 millimeter. I'm gonna have to consult, it's been a family tradition to go to the 70 millimeter fest every year for the last three or four. Um, so I'm gonna probably propose Interstellar, just because that that's would, yeah, one yeah, that- Yeah, absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, yep. You know, I, I don't think, um, Adeline and Beatrix, my daughters, have seen, and um, I probably underrated. It's the one Nolan I'm, I'm just not totally sold about, so I'd like to see it again. Accurate. And um, I don't know. I'd, so it might be Hello, Dolly, or it might be Interstellar. And, and West Side, who's seen West Side Story here in that print? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a beaut, too. That's Our PA cat is definitely going to see West Side Story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sam, what, you're probably not going to make the trek from make Spring it. Green. It's a three-hour commute, but I want to shout out Tasha Robinson. Because when this was um, being announced, Tasha pointed out Life Force, Toby Hooper's Life Force, which I think is getting a screening, which is, I bring it up because it's the movie I saw looking backwards out the back window of my car to drive in when I was supposed to be watching The Goonies. So I, I have a, an unusual relationship with that movie. It's just sort of haunted me. And so I have no idea really what the movie's about. I've never seen it other than in that scenario so, don't ruin the memory Sam. Do you maybe tasha, just stick what, with that <laughs> tasha what did you say about it do you i mean you have this amazing recall i just said uh there's gonna be one big crisp naked lady vampire <laughs> crisp naked lady vampire i'm yes. now picturing like how old were you eight oh yeah right i mean like, it's 80 against the 85. window <laughs> i mean i remember that i turned around just as the crisp I'm, I'm naked sure lady vampire <laughs> appeared and this is what seared into my memory so Three-hour commute doesn't sound so bad now to get down here <laughs> to the 70-millimeter fest. So, like you, Josh, I like to bring the kids to see some of these great films on the big screen. And Holden and Sophie and I have done West Side Story. We've done Interstellar. And we've done 2001, which they both love. So, I got smart kids. I'm just bragging about my kids. But I'm with you, Michael. I think The Untouchables is the one that just seems like, I mean, a Chicago, a Chicago the ultimate Chicago film, maybe, seeing it at... The ultimate Chicago theater. Yeah, I mean, I just it, the blow up. This is you know more than we want to get into, but I mean the whole idea of blowing up the print to to fit this format can lead to some good results and some others. Like Ghostbusters in '70 blow up. I don't know. I mean, it's not that it's not that doesn't help the comedy, you know. And and that film actually struggles with its with having enough comedy in it anyway. I think. But you know, you have to look. For the directors that can that can like like Hawks, even if he's not filming vistas, you know, and, and Monument Valley, you know, people who know how to just sort of you know energize even small encounters uh, on on, a, on the right screens. And I think De Palma had that. I think I think the, I mean, there's a shot in The Untouchables that's got the best sort of flourish of Ennio Morricone music, and all it is is. Costner, Sean Connery, Andy Garcia, and Charlie Martin Smith walking across LaSalle Street from one side of the street to the other, and that's it. 
it's just 30 seconds of four guys walking across the street and it's like you know i saw it and i just wept tears because it's like you know it, it's it's old it's filmmaking before digital just before digital uh it's it's big budget big studio filmmaking in that they got dozens of period perfect cars and and you know the the guy who actually knew how to move a camera up and down and then in and all without cutting and yeah i mean that's why i want to see it here more information about that musicboxtheater.com fern fern josephs are you out there thank you so my question is when you watch a movie, I'm curious what techniques you use as you're watching a movie, especially one that you're going to know you're going to discuss or review, so that you remember the things that you need to remember. Because I find when I listen to you or read your reviews, you mention like a line or a scene, and I've seen the movie, but I don't remember it. So I guess it's for me to um, enhance instead of just watching a movie for entertainment, to watch it more as a from a critical standpoint. So I'm curious if you take notes or what what techniques you use. I will admit, I, I wanted to make sure, thank you, Fern, for the question, that this one was included because I wanted to hear what the professionals, Josh and Michael, had to say, so hopefully I would, I would learn something. So guys, as, as people who have had to, uh, several times, regularly, turn around things on, on deadline and uh, process movies fairly quickly and prepare sometimes to talk about it for 30 minutes plus on the show, any tips, any secrets? <laughs> uh... Uh, it's different. You, you watched movies, different movies for in different ways, and you can't expect to try to um, take the same sort of notes or or even or even watch a film, this uh, two films the same way in, in the same week. It's just not. This is a hopeless answer, but uh, it. Uh, you know, you're not you're not trying to watch it devoid of the entertainment value, you know, because that's psychotic. Uh, with a film like this, yeah, this film resists what we just saw tonight, Rio Bravo. It, it, to, 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 I guess it's really more just like giving it a fair shake. What kind of film was it trying to be and how well did it pull it off? You don't want to put a film like Rio Bravo up against the important motion picture or serious message-laden Western uh, um, yardstick. It's it's not fair. It's not there. They were not interested. So okay, how was it? How was it as is? And you know, does it work for you? The three. I think this is the Goethe. Oh, okay, I'll tone the show up for just a second. Johann Goethe had. Uh, he was also. Uh, he wrote some literary criticism at the time. He's writing Faust, I think, and he had three precepts that actually kind of hold up. What was the artist trying to accomplish? How well did the artist accomplish it? And this is where the critic comes in. Was it worth accomplishing? And and, and so that's you know, success or failure is that's easy. You know that's and and usually that's reductive and kind of the that's not opening any critical windows. That's just sort of shutting things down. But was it worth accomplishing? That makes that makes all of us sort of figure out. Okay, why? Why did I have that reaction? Why? Why is the most important word? That's it. Because then you can get to the details. That's a great philosophical answer. You are a prolific note taker, though. So how do you pull it off? Because I sit next to him sometimes in screenings. I could show you my notes from Rio Bravo that we just watched. It's about it's like ten scribbles on a page that I didn't even look at up here because I, it would take me an hour to try to process what I wrote down. Somehow says, you know says, how the, to do it. says the guy who just put that down to two oh, very nicely typed. I haven't looked at those either, though. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, the unfortunate thing is I can, uh, because of my handwriting, I can read about 8% of what I've written at the end of the, so that doesn't really help me out. I think for your question is sort of a variation, which I, I do get a lot of, do you ever watch a movie just to enjoy it? Or do you ever watch a movie just to have fun? And I think probably for a lot of us in that room, that's a somewhat of a false distinction because paying as close of attention as it requires to really receive a movie is fun. Um, and that's maybe what distinguishes people who are obsessive about movies from those who enjoy it. And it's not saying one is doing it right and one's doing it wrong. It's just a different way of experiencing film. And the only other thing I would add to that is um, I think it's always helpful to let the film speak first. And that means don't come into it, it ties a little bit, Michael, with what you're talking about is like comparing it to like, is, how does this Western, obviously this is something we're all gonna do when we get back and start processing, but when you're in the theater, don't worry so much about um, how it compares to this director's other works or you know how it compares to other Westerns. All that stuff is good stuff to explore later, but when you sit down, shut up, and let the movie show you what it wants to show you. And, um, then you'll start processing it from there. To kind of trust yourself to have an interesting response to the movie. Trust yourself to be engaged. And um, as I was thinking about this question, you know, earlier I was just like, you know, watch a movie twice back to back, kind of if you want to sort of train yourself to see things, because yeah, it's, it's hard. But also what I realized as I was watching Rio Bravo is that the best way to pay attention to details is know that you're going to have to get in front of a couple hundred people and True talk about the movie. So if you could somehow Pressure. engineer that, um, you know, <laughs> having to like, you know that when you, as soon as you're done watching this movie, you're going to have to talk well, about it. And that speaks yeah. to the to film spotting listeners. Like, sure. you're no, you know you're speaking to a group who have paid that close attention. Yeah, sure. And so you're going to hear back if you haven't done the film justice. Yeah. Not in a matter of opinion, but in attention. Maybe appropriately, then we're going to get to one more listener question that is going to make us think really profoundly. So, no pressure there. Davey Henriksen, Chicago. Where are you at, Davey? Right there. Thanks, guys. And thanks for a great screening and really the best podcast out there, I think. Thank you. So, my question is if you had to pick one filmmaker who reflects your spiritual worldview in the broadest sense of the word spiritual, who would that be? Who wants to go first? <laughs> I'm not going to be able to expound on it, but I had a quick answer, so I'll just get it over with. Um, Agnes Varda. Yeah, you named you know, your dog after her. True story. Game over, drop the mic. Uh, <laughs> but for me, I mean, what a discovery through film spotting marathons. Um, and it was her, it's her, it's her compassion, it's her empathy, it's her ability to um, experiment with every film and find a way through it. But also, you know, as somebody who, as a persona, I think she became almost this whimsical figure. But talk about somebody who was not afraid to look at really dark, bleak stuff um, and find real humanity and empathy in that. Um, but just the, the endless creativity and curiosity above mm -hmm. all. I mean, that to me is like, that's a spirituality is curiosity and that's what this is all about, so. Agnes. Yeah, that's the word that came to mind, curiosity for sure. And especially as, um, you know, the hard stuff, her documentaries, the last couple of documentaries, just how they looked at her own aging, 
and her yeah. own mortality was yeah the lines on her hands yes yeah yeah, yeah just training in on that um uh, quick plug we are, i i lead last couple of years i've led the ebert interruptus at the uh conference on world affairs at university of colorado boulder we're doing cleo from five to seven oh, this year awesome. so mm-hmm. um we'll be digging into varda for a, a week straight um mm. so for me you know there's you know, Terrence Malick is someone, it's almost, it's too easy of an answer um, because his understanding, it's, it's a deeply Christian understanding of the world as both beautiful and broken, and his films have a, um, a hope within them as well of how things might be restored to beauty. Um, that's just really powerful for me and um, done in a way that's not didactic at all, done in a way that he's been able to get away with it for decades without people really noticing it. Otherwise, I don't think he would have um, been as widely revered as he is, but that's kind of too easy of an answer for me. So um, I'm gonna say the real answer is probably Andre Tarkovsky. And I'm gonna say that because um, I think as I've gotten older, I'm more comfortable when it comes to questions like this with the mystery than the answers. And Tarkovsky, others will argue, is also a deeply Christian filmmaker, but um, I have no idea what's going on in his <laughs> movies, um, but there's something going on in his movies, and there's something deeply searching and true. So we're talking Solaris, Stalker, Nostalgia, The Sacrifice, and others I have still yet to see. So um, I think it's the the journey that his movies offer that maybe I resonate with. Um, so I'm going to go with Tarkovsky. My sort of pithy answer to this is that Varda is the filmmaker's worldview I want, I aspire to, in terms of everything you said, the empathy, the compassion, the curiosity, the creativity. That, that's, that's the pinnacle, I think. More realistically, it's probably my favorite filmmakers, which are the Coen brothers, where they're just, it's a chaotic world. They're just looking for reason, and, and rationality and, and trying to establish order. They, they just want to make sense of it, man, you know? And I, that's, that's, I think that's part of the reason I go to the movies. I'm just trying to make sense of it. So Coen Brothers are probably who I really am, but Varda's who I wish I could be. Um, it, it was such a, I talked to Agnes Varda a couple of years before she died, and that was just, that was just a, you know, you, you, that's why you feel like a lucky SOB in this line of work if you just happen to get 40, 45 minutes with somebody like that just to, just to hear what's on their mind, you know. Um, uh, honestly, I think somebody like Howard Hawks is as good as anybody for me. I, I it, it's, uh, I mean, I love Vincent Minnelli probably a little more just because there's something about, I mean, I love the musical form more than a lot of genres and Minnelli did most of the musicals I love the best, but um, um, I think there's something about in of old Hollywood, you know, of old Hollywood, it just—he's the guy that unassuming is right, and you can just learn so much about just how to film two people talking. You know, even watching these scenes, even just a simple two shot that's done on a diagonal that isn't really like a typical over-the-shoulder thing. It's really more like, hey, we actually have two great faces in the same frame talking to each other, listening, and that's what makes, you know, when it comes down to it, so much of the movies is just about two people. We're, we're talking, <laughs> and I, I love the way Hawks just flitted around genres and 
never really, you know, never really. Uh, I really, I really love the kind of his his uh, ability to make you take things seriously. But the films are very self-effacing and kind of laugh at um, over-interpreting them. You know, I don't know. I just love. I, I I just love. You can learn so much from craft and a little bit about the human condition. I think from them. You know, it's. Uh, there's there's more important filmmakers by the by the dozens Bergman Tarkovsky, I mean my favorite guy probably alive now is the the Turkish director Nuri Bilge Ceylan that not even they don't even like him in Turkey, you know but so he's not like you know is a is a global influence I don't care I love him so if you haven't seen any Ceylan's work check it out but that's yeah, that's all we go for. that's what we want well Michael praising two people talking might be the best note to end this night on as it's been you know thinking about Master going back of the segue yeah thank you Adam 15 Kepner. years ago and what this was all about and honestly for Sam and me there were there were certainly no ambitions that in 15 years we'd be sitting here at the music box that we would still be doing the show that we would have people like Michael like Tasha like Scott and Keith who were people we looked up to and admired that they would be here and and be part of this and would be champions of the show and colleagues so uh, we're really I, I don't know what I'll say except we're we're grateful and and humbled and we appreciate everybody coming out tonight and Sam what else do we need to add here do we just close it out that's, you're the producer produce it. what do you uh, this conversation what, what's, yeah. the, what's the bit where's the, the 2001 clip we do want to say real quick, uh, thanks to Tyler, who had a, some eloquent thoughts at the beginning of this, but Tyler Thank Green, you, Tyler. none of these live shows happen without him. He's been a real friend of the show over the years, and yeah, we're, we're bummed that he's leaving us, but he's still going to be part of our live shows, and we're grateful for that. So thank you, Tyler. Round of applause for Tyler. And... To Adam Yaffe, our sound engineer, uh, everybody at WBEZ who participated and was a media sponsor of this event, of course our friends at MUBI as we mentioned, and Golden Joe and Kat and everybody else who has any role in the show, we really appreciate it. Michael Phillips, Sam, Josh, thank you. Good night. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Thanks again to everyone who came out, getting a chance to catch up with listeners who we've met before, people we met for the first time. Really a ton of fun over there at Chicago's Music Box Theater. And as you heard, we're hitting the road. We have our next date for the 15th anniversary tour. It is Friday, June 19th. We'll be at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Yeah, I can't wait for that show. And it's possible that by the time you are hearing this, those tickets are on sale. That is our expectation. Either way, your best bet for all the information you need is to go to filmspotting.net slash events, filmspotting.net slash events, and you will get all of the information there. We do have more dates to come. There will be at least two other film spotting tour stops. We hope to have those details all locked down here in the next few weeks. We want to say thanks again to WBEZ. Thanks again to Mubi for sponsoring the show and to everyone who spent really a good chunk of their weekend with us, Josh, between the meet and greet for many listeners watching Rio Bravo and sticking around for the discussion and Q&A. We may mention here that future tour stops may or may not include screenings like our Rio Bravo. It really just depends on the venue and we're trying to check all the available options and dates. I'm not sure right now that the Bell House will because of the nature of that place. So we're looking for a good topic 
to discuss. It might be a top five. We do plan a few guests, and we'll share that information soon. If you have a good idea for how we should commemorate our 15th anniversary celebration at the Bell House in Brooklyn, we'd love to hear it. Feedback at filmspotting.net. And it's worth noting, as we're announcing this live show and tickets being available, that if you would like first access to those tickets, and in most cases, a discount, that's available to the Film Spotting family members over on Patreon. We announced the launch of our Patreon last week, and the response has been really great so far, very encouraging, and it's been nice to read the comments that have come in, as well as people have pledged and joined the family, including this one from James Imploding Pageant. That's Sam Van Halgren giving one of his patented nicknames to James from Belleville, Illinois. He wrote, I just became a patron on Patreon and I'm looking forward to some cool benefits, but I'm mostly happy to be able to easily support the show. That has been really rewarding, Josh, that, yeah, people do want the benefits, but Patreon also has just allowed them to very easily show their support for us. And maybe they have supported us with a donation or two over the years. Maybe they haven't. And this has been finally the impetus for that. Well, part of the ease is also that you can do custom pledges too, right? To become a film spotting family member, it's a basic $5 a month amount. But if you want to do a tip jar donation of a buck a month, you can do that. If you want to give more, you can do that as well. You can. And I do want to note, because there's been a little bit of confusion about this, we've had a handful of listeners who have been extremely generous and they said, I want to join the family, but I want to donate even more than $5, whether it's $6 a month or $10. We even got a $15 a month pledge today. What happens is when people are entering that custom pledge amount, it's then circumventing the family tier. So they're giving us that extra money, but they're not necessarily getting the benefits of being part of the family. Now I've caught these and the listeners have been able to adjust and make that change. But simply my recommendation is if you're one of those people who wants to be extra generous and donate an extra amount, don't click custom pledge, click on the family. Like you're going to donate $5 after you've selected that tier, then you just change the $5 amount to whatever you want to contribute. But then that way you will be part of the family and you will get some of those benefits, including early downloads the early access to live show tickets and discounts, and the bonus content. We've got our first set of bonus content coming up here in just about a week. We're going to do an extra film from our 8 from 84 series. So this is called 8 Isn't Enough from 84. We gave our Patreon family members three options, three nostalgic options from that year, and whatever they pick is the one we're going to review. Are, are the options only available to uh, family members? No. Or can we right, we'll share them? Let's say it. It is Beverly Hills Cop. Yep. Romancing the Stone and Karate Kid. The Karate Kid. It is the Karate Kid. It is the Karate okay. Kid. Now, right. in our listeners, we trust. And yet, is it worth trying to sway the vote a little bit more slash <laughs> just be brutally honest with our listeners and say that, We were both probably hoping for a different movie to win than the one that is currently leading. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be the one we land on, because basically you'll have until at least Friday the 14th, depending on when you're hearing this, by the Mm -hmm. end of the day on Friday, 5 p.m. Central Time, you will have a chance to get your vote in. Become a family member if you haven't already and get your vote in. But I kind of wanted to rewatch The Karate Kid because I could watch it with my kids. Yeah. That makes sense. I thought that would be fun. See if my young boys, who are now the age I was when I saw it, would be into it. I know you were curious to see Romancing the Stone again. Yeah. Romancing the Stone is not only the one that I liked best, 
in the 80s, but I think it's the one that my daughters would probably enjoy the most rewatching. So, but hey, you know, it's not up to us, Adam. This is the beauty of a Patreon. <laughs> the patrons get to determine how you they and I do. are going to spend this weekend. Yeah, right now it's close. Beverly Hills Cop is leading. And look, I love Eddie Murphy and I loved that film in the 80s. And I'm sure it will be a fun rewatch, but yeah. And I'm sure it will be a fun rewatch. If you want to get in on that eight isn't enough from 84 action, again, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash film spotting. Again, that's patreon.com slash film spotting. And Josh, that's our show. Indeed it is. Over at the show archives, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back 15 years to 2005. That is all at filmspotting.net which is where you can also vote in the current film spotting poll. We are asking for your favorite performance duo of the 2010s. So we have some options there. Two performances from the same film, actors working together, which duo do you like best? To order film spotting t-shirts or other film spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And if you want to subscribe to the weekly film spotting newsletter, find out about a lot of the stuff we talk about on the show a couple of days in advance, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. We are on Twitter and Facebook, so if you want to reach out to us there, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Out in wide release this weekend. There's Sonic the Hedgehog, there's Blumhouse's Fantasy Island, and The Photograph, which I just saw a trailer for, Lakeith Stanfield and that. I am curious about The Photograph. I'm also curious about what's out in limited release this weekend. And then we danced Downhill, which is a remake of 2014's Force Majeure. This one stars Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Will Ferrell, and I think part of me has just been kind of mad inside Mm -hmm. that they decided to remake this. I saw the trailer today kind of want to see it you know i i understand and that's kind of what makes me mad like if this if it was just a obviously junky ripoff project with people you weren't interested in yes. it'd be easier to dismiss right but now because i love these two actors right loved force majeure so i'm i know the concept is great yeah i kind of want to see it too so there you go we might both be there this weekend corpus christi also out this is the best international film nominee from poland next week on the show it is our countdown of the top 10 performers of the 2010s. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.